Welcome back to Dev Dive episode 31. I'm your host, Nighthawk. Today's guest is Nicholas Saharius, a gameplay programmer at Larian Studios, the developers of Divinity and Baldur's Gate. Thanks for coming on the show, Nicholas. Hey, happy to, happy to be here. I was a little bit surprised to just stumble on this, but yeah. Here we yeah, are. Um, pretty similar story to the last two or three guests we've had on the show. Nicholas uh, saw a thread that I made on Reddit, and, and he offered to come on the show because I was lamenting the fact that I wasn't able to get any guests on. I said, <laughs> I said like, getting oh, I guests... I think you have plenty of guests, right? It's just a lot of Riot guests. A lot of Riot guests. And, and <laughs> while I'm endlessly, endlessly thankful to all the Rioters who, who volunteer all of their time and effort to come on the show, um, it does... I think it does put a little bit of a damper on the basic vision of the show which is to give people a a wide and diverse view of how to get into game dev and all the different aspects of that and i think yeah but i mean no one's gonna fold you right like that's where your connections were initially so that's where you go for yeah and it's still probably going to be um disproportionately rider guests but i'm so incredibly thankful for people like you who who have volunteered to come on the show and give me um <laughs> different viewpoints sorry if i pause my cat is being really obnoxious and jumping up on my desk that's, that's what cats do right yeah he's a he's he's new to the house so i'm ex- i'm still learning the ins and out of cat ownership but uh <laughs> yeah so i want to talk a bit more about what you do at larian just as an introduction and we can get more into it yep. later in the show and like what your title actually means because i don't know it feels like a very broad title, and I want to make sure we get down to like what what it actually means. So, like, what does a game programmer do, or sorry, game play programmer do, and what sort yeah. of impact does it have on somebody like me? So, general speaking, like programmers, I find programmers in game development, so not the game programmer specifically, um, they tend to be very multiversed. Um, once you start getting like AAA, you'll really have people that really, really do focus on a very specific thing. doesn't mean that they can't do the other stuff as well, but you tend to get really pigeonholed into a single thing. Um, but as a general, as a whole, like uh, people in game development are quite capable of doing fulfilling quite a few roles. At Larian, I'm actually pretty lucky because I actually do get to fill a bunch of different roles quite often. Um, in fact, the company is trying to steer a bit more that way that it's not like a single person does this one thing and nobody else touches it because you kind of get into the situation of, well, if that person decides to retire or maybe they want to switch studios or maybe they just want to leave it completely, then suddenly you have to kind of replace that, right? Um, but yeah, like just as like an overall thing, but generally speaking, a game programmer, they're the people that glue all the different systems together. So you've got like the engine team, like if you have one, you might be working with like Unity or Unreal, but you take essentially the tools that they've provided, you might build some tools on top of it, and then you've got to make that work with whatever the animation team, the art team, the level design team, um, the scripters, um, audio team. You're pretty much just trying to fit all those together whilst at the same time trying to make some gameplay elements that actually are fun. So me personally at Larian Studios, what I've spent most of my time on has been pathfinding the locomotion. So if you are playing Baldur's Gate 3 at the moment, I've had quite a bit to do with 
we spent a lot of time trying to get the locomotion down well. So even like making sure that what's happening with the actual movement syncs up quite well with the animation. So I'll work with the animation team, but more specifically, I'll work with the um, technical animation team because they're the people that are in charge of the tools that the animators will use and then how those also interact with the gameplay. Just to get a bit of scope onto what type of studio Larian is, how large, how many people do you have working there? Do you know? So when, when I joined on, because Larian, I think we're up to five studios now. Might oh, be wow. Even. Yeah, we got quite a few. It's, it's an interesting mix. But when I joined on at Quebec, our studio was about 20, 25 people. And I think we're getting close to 100 just in this studio. Wow. And then I believe the other studios, it really depends on which one you ask, but they're like between 20 and 100 as well. Like, I think the Dublin team, they're a bit smaller and same as Malaysia because they're brand new. Um, but I'm pretty sure Ghent and St. Petersburg, they're at least above 50, each of them. So would you um, consider this like straight up AAA? It's a weird mix because we essentially, I feel like we went from triple indie, if that's a thing. Like, we had a pretty good team going on in um, Divinity Original Sin 2, but it wasn't huge, um, to say the least. Not when you look at, like, Ubisoft, who have, I think, Montreal alone, they have 5,000 employees. It's, it's like, that's, like, ridiculous, and I don't even know how they manage that. Like, there's so many different teams running all the time. Um, but, yeah, so, like, we're, like, easily within the 300 ballpark, right? Um, but when... Divinity Original Sin 2 was being developed, it wasn't quite nearly that high. So, so what... I don't really consider this AAA just because we don't have the manpower for that. But I think the content we're pushing out is starting to get up there. Yeah, and, and the definition for AAA is so loose anyway that I don't yeah. think... I mean, I, I wouldn't fault anyone for, for coming out and saying like, yeah, oh yeah, that's definitely a AAA. Um, I, I guess it really depends on what your experience, what your experience is with AAA. Like, like you said, if you're coming from Ubisoft, you'll be like, oh, 300 people? No. But if you're coming from <laughs> like, maybe a smaller studio, you're like, oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, what there is... is a side of this, right? Of, I, I haven't been at these studios before, so I, I really have very little insight about what's, what it's like there. I imagine you probably have a bit more knowledge since um, <laughs> you've got you know, quite a few people who come from Riot who I would consider as a bigger team or a bigger studio than what we are. That's okay. I want to talk about that in a little bit, but I actually just want to say, uh, I want to ask what type of division of labor is happening between these? Like, so you said Larian has five studios now, like how yeah, does that, how does that break up? Is it, is it everyone's like working on a different aspect of the game or some people are working on it, something else entirely. So Larian is, again, I don't know too much about other studios, but I've, from kind of what I hear, Larian tends to be a little bit unique in this, in that, like, Ubisoft, for example, they'll have Ubisoft Quebec, they'll have Ubisoft Montreal, they'll have the different studios, and a lot of the time, those individual studios will work on an individual game. Maybe they might team up with an, another studio. Um, but Larian, it's everyone, we're all working on the same game, and every single studio has a very broad mix of skills. So. Each studio might be a little bit more weighted towards one thing. Um, for example, the uh, Quebec studio, we actually have quite a few animators um, on our team and we have three. Yeah, I guess it's three now, three gameplay programmers, right? Which is not 
the huge amount. Ghent has probably, I think, about five gameplay programs. We've got some more in St. Petersburg, and then actually we've got, I think, another couple floating around. But you get the idea, right, that we're spread across all the studios. So we've got animators everywhere. We've got um, programmers everywhere. We've got designers and scripters, and everyone is everywhere. So we kind of have this very much a very, it's a 24-hour cycle on what's being developed. But I don't envy the managers that have to somehow communicate with all their team members across the world at the same time. I was just about to say that it must be a very interesting job to be a project manager at this company <laughs> um, <laughs> or, or any sort of logistics job, man. Uh, I, have, I had a guest on a few, I guess a few months ago now, uh, Dr. Amin, who is a the founder of a uh, an app that focuses on League of Legends. They They... I think they're up to like 70 people now. So they're definitely not a, a small wow. company. And he does a lot of international work. He has people all over in the Middle East, in, in, in uh, Indonesia, in America. Like, so he, he spends a lot of time just having meetings with, with team leads all over the country, all yeah. over the world, just to make sure everyone's on the same page. <laughs> Cause it's a lot it's, of different it's that, like I feel like there must be like someone somewhere must have like a little, a tiering level of, the size of the studio or like as a whole, like of everyone working together and at like what points you really need to start introducing managerial product managers into it because otherwise how is everyone going to mesh and work together? And cause you need someone to delegate tasks. Otherwise, I mean, I can't just work on what I want to. I got to talk with people about it and we got to make sure that what I'm working on someone else isn't already doing at the same time. I've seen, so and I've heard so many different stories of uh, founders who hold on too long. They hold on to the the um so so the job of a CEO and a founder is to sort of have like a wide vision about what's going on at a company and, and to sort of like do have a little bit of their thumb in every single pie. But yeah. I think that it, it's a trap that some people fall into where they want to be too involved in every single little thing. They want to be uh, basically the creative director of everything that comes out of uh, a, a product. And when you're small, when you're like 10, 20 people, that may be feasible, even if it is a lot of work. Mm -hmm. But when you start to expand to 20, 30, 40, 50, 100, 1,000 people, it just doesn't, it's not possible. Um, I, th I think the big one on that is the real advantage of when you have it that small, not only can like the CEO founder really manage it tightly, but it's very easy to ensure that everyone on the team has the same vision about what we're making. Once you start getting bigger, you can lose that really quickly if you uh -huh. want. I have found Larian, like everyone I talk to, everyone's got the same idea in their head. They want to make the best Baldur's Gate game that they, we possibly can. That's still like core to what D&D is. But like just having that as a base level is pretty good. But I do think like as a whole, everyone is really trying to they get what we're trying to make, right? And I think a lot of that came from is because we didn't just like suddenly snap to a big studio. We had like a good core group of people. And then when I joined on during Divinity, and then once people are joining on during Baldur's Gate, they're kind of learning from the people beside them about what sort of game we're trying to make here. So that's actually a great transition into my next topic because I wanted to ask, um, I, I should ask this question more often. I want to ask what it, what it means to you. Like, what makes Divinity and Baldur's Gate special to you as a person? Did you grow up playing these games? Well, obviously not. Divinity, so, but... 
No, that's okay. I mean, I never touched a Divinity game, um, like the real classic ones, like Divinity 1 and 2 and Dragon Commander and like some of the real old uh, Larian games. But before I joined on, I used to be working at Halfbrick Studios back in Australia. So I was working on Jetpack Joyride, the mobile game. Um, and during that time, I was playing Divinity Original Sin 1 with some mates of mine. Um, so we'd like have like, I think I had like two campaigns going on, one with one friend and one with another. And that's what got me into enjoying Larian Studios because it's like, thank God someone actually has a co-op RPG. And not just that, but it's a co-op RPG that's a little bit more akin to some of the classic RPGs. Because you do find like we get co-op RPGs these days, but they tend to be a bit more like, uh, let's just say like Dragon Age Inquisition, where it's, it's very much more action orientated. Um, it's it's that third person controller. You're just running around real time, all that sort of thing. Where Larian just went, no, 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 turn based. We we enjoy that. It's a lot of fun. Um, it does take quite a time, but we worked around it. So that's kind of when I heard about them, and that's so I already enjoyed their games. And then when I quit at Half Brick, um, I kind of had this floating time, and I was like, you know what, I really want to move somewhere and a friend just happened to send me uh, a message just being like hey dude i know you're looking for a job did you see that larian is hiring right now and i'm just like oh okay cool that sounds sick and i had already bought um divinity original sin 2 so it was just a real sweetener of the pot so i was already a big fan of the studio before i even started working there so wait you said that you bought divinity original sin 2 but then you went and you worked on it how much post because i know something that i i I recognize going into this is that Baldur's gate is like sort of in active development right now it's still Mm -hmm. it's it's in early uh would you say early access it is it's definitely early access yeah um so they're they're sort of this actively working on something and i don't think that really gets seen like that sort of uh model really gets seen outside of like some of the smaller studios and it's really interesting to see a larger studio uh come in and and make that decision to to release an early access game and actively develop it over the course of however long it takes i mean it's definitely stressful like Mm -hmm. we were all watching the early access release um we had like a small party for when it went live um and that sort of stuff and so we're all watching streamers watch uh playing it right and as everyone knows, your first release, especially when it's in early access, it doesn't go super swimmingly, um, especially multiplayer situations. And we're watching some of these streamers that are just struggling to get connected to each other. We're just like, ah, it's, yeah. it can be painful. But I mean, to what you asked me before, like I joined, I think like three months, maybe, after the initial early access. I can't remember exactly how much how much time had passed before I joined and started working, but I was on Divinity Original Sin 2 for, I would say, about six months before we did full release, and then there was probably another six months, maybe a bit more after that, where we were just doing patches, content updates. Um, so there was, was a full, there was a full year of Divinity 2 development work after you joined. Yeah, but a lot of that time was me getting onboarded with <laughs> the code in the first place like this was me trying to learn because they have their own custom engine so it's not like i could just come and be like yeah, yeah, yeah i've worked in unity before i know 
how a lot of it works. No, I had to learn their style. I had to up my C++ skills, work my programming skills to match what they were looking for. And then they would give, they would give me some small tasks to start off with. I think like one of the first major features that I did was the ready check that you do. So it's like you finished act one and Fort joy go into the boat, but you're playing with friends and you don't want to be like, yeah, I just advanced us to the next level, but you still were looting stuff. So I did like this very basic, someone has started a ready check. Are you ready in order to like count down? And I had to make sure that that was networked if people canceled or joined and quit and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, for me, I was only, I'd only been programming for about two years. So it was an interesting step to be able to just like, I started on, I joined and they're just like, oh yeah, here's a couple basic things. Here's a couple bugs. And then boom, we want you to do this feature, which is interesting enough because I quite literally had to rewrite that thing um, for Baldur's Gate 3. So I quite literally got to see code from myself from four years ago and just be like, oh, what did I do here? Why did <laughs> I make these decisions? And How, I, I, I want to ask this question. This might be painful for you. How quickly does your own code become uh, obsolete? Difficult. Yeah, I didn't want to say obsolete. How how quickly does it become <laughs> difficult when you go back and look at it and you say, "Oh man, this, um, is, this is a mess." Well, it's it's interesting. Like, it's not often you actually get to go back and see your own code. Um, at least not in the situation that I'm in, because. The code I've been working on has been evolving throughout the entirety of Baldur's Gate because it's kind of like, I'll write it. Well, actually, that's not entirely accurate. Some things you do get to revisit, <clears throat> and it can be like a glaring, um, not a glaring problem, but like this glaring mirror looking back into your own history and just being like, oh my goodness, why... What was I thinking? What was I doing here? But at the same time, it's kind of reassuring to be like, yeah, I've obviously changed as a programmer. I've obviously gotten better. I mean, for me, the hallmark of good code is something that you can go back and just read and just be like, oh yeah, I get what they're doing. And even if there's mistakes in it, it's written well enough that you can see the mistakes pretty much straight off the bat. Um, so, I mean, if you can go back and like if something's not working, you can modify it and now it does work. That's great. That's good code. I wouldn't say the ready check I did was that good code though. That's that's actually super interesting because we had uh one of the one of the two weeks ago our guest, uh the full stack engineer or sorry, the front end engineer I was talking about, he runs a little D D podcast or a little D D show where he uh he's been doing it for a while now. And one of the things mm -hmm. that we were talking about about that was that it was really interesting to be able to go back to his first shows and like see where his his progress is being made. So it was actually super interesting when you made that comparison or when you made that um example for engineering for coding because I'm like that that really is comparable going back and and looking at something that you produced um 2 years ago and then coming back and saying like oh man did I really use that mic did I really uh not edit this down? Um, well, I mean, a lot of a lot of programmers these days have their own GitHub accounts, right? So I've got some code on GitHub from when I was a student, and I remember one time I was like, "Oh yeah, I remember I wrote some code to do what was it? It was mesh slicing. Like, 
think that you like have a cube and you just want to be like using a sword you want to just cut through it essentially like what fruit ninja did right um i remember being like oh yeah i wrote that code a while back i should go back and reuse it and put it in a game i remember going back and be like i don't understand fucking shit about how any of this works and trying to get it to work and just be like i get that it works but reading it why does there it are work? so many decisions here that i don't even understand myself and the comments if you even have any, don't mean much to you. Um, shoot, I was gonna say something about that. Oh, oh, yeah. So, so a GitHub, having a personal GitHub as a programmer, is that sort of like having a social media account for for being a programmer, where you're like, this is my, this is instead of sharing a picture of your coffee, you're sharing a a picture of your code. It's it's, a, it's not actually really like that at all, to be honest. GitHub is it's got it's two really good things. Number one. It's great because you just have a backup of your work. Um, every programmer learns very quickly that you need an online repository for your work. Because if you don't, as soon as you have a computer fail, you're fucked. Um, so that's number one. Number two, it's a, such an amazing place to share and discover code um, that other people have worked on. So to give you an example, like there is two very very popular um repositories on github these days number one is ent e-n-t-t um it's made by this guy that calls himself skypejack um <clears throat> he has essentially just made like a very small framework for entity component system the model around that which is a i can explain it a bit later if we want but it's just called ecs um and he's made this very easy friendly usable thing and he shared it with the world and it's free. And then on that, he's also started linking the other repositories of people that use it. So then I myself, like, and I've done this, I've gone, okay, cool. I'm just using it for this. And then it's like, oh, I want to do X, Y, and Z. I wonder if anyone else has done it already. So then you can actually just go through the people that have already started using it and you can see if they've got something similar that maybe you can steal an idea or get some inspiration from. Or just be like, oh, they did it this way. I don't want to do it that way. I'm going to do it other way. Um, that's, so that's pretty cool. That gets into a whole question of like, so these people are obviously sharing it on on the site for, for other people to use. What's, like, what, is there any question about like intellectual property for something like this? Or is it sort of just like once it's out there, it's gone? Like, it's it's a hard one. There is some which is like if I like the ENT ENTT one ENT, um, that one I believe is a hundred percent free to use commercially. Don't quote me on that. I'm not <laughs> using it commercially, so I'm kind of in the clear. It's it's very much I'm just using this for personal work. Um, but a lot of the times, like when someone has done an actual release for people to use, they will have the license down the bottom, and it will be like usually it's an MIT license. Um, or something similar. Um, a lot of the times it's like, you can use this for free commercially. You just have to mention that you're using my technology. Or if you're using this commercially and you've altered it, you cannot say it is my one. Like it's now your property or something like that. Like they all do have their own little... They don't specifics. want to get blamed for your bad work. <laughs> Like if you use this in a government contract or something like that, and suddenly it's broken something in the defense network, you can't blame them because their code doesn't work. 
I'm um, sure this is I'm sure this is like the worst possible example ever because I, I, anyone who's into programming is probably like that's not how it works at all. But if I was like a developer <laughs> at EA or like so I was working on a Star Wars game and I just went to GitHub and I stole a bunch of not stole but I I took a bunch of stuff. Um, is it even possible for somebody to like track that down if if the source code isn't released? That that is usually there was actually a really interesting case of something similar happening like that, which was <clears throat> do you remember Fallout Shelter? I do remember Fallout Shelter. Okay, so I think. An external company made that for Bethesda. And they got caught out because the code that they used to make Fallout Shelter, they reused some of it to make mm -hmm. their own game. And the reason they got caught is because someone realized that the bug, there was one bug in Fallout Shelter, was also present in their game. And it's only at that point, like essentially someone needs to be able to say, we have suspicion of it. And then that's when you go to the lawyers mm. and that sort of stuff goes down. Um, that's like kind of like if it's kind of hidden behind the scenes, there is stuff like I do know that a lot of companies use a GitHub repository called image GUI. I am, I am GUI. Yeah, I am GUI. I call it image GUI. Um, I think the amount of studios in the world like you'd be hard find not to find a studio that doesn't use this his stuff. And I'm pretty sure it's just one guy that writes all of this. But like That's pretty much crazy. the entirety of the game development studio, uh, game development scene is all using his stuff. I could pretty confidently say that because essentially what it is, it's just like this tiny little user interface package that's just very very programmer friendly. It's like. I need a small window with a button on it and it's got some text. And you don't want to have to hard code that into your game specifically. You just kind of want to have like, this is just for me, yeah. just so I can test something, right? It's just so, it's so like simple scaffolding. to get that out. Yeah, it's just essentially some scaffolding, right? Um, some people will build like debugging tools around it so that it's like, it's not a part of the game, it's separated from it. So you don't want to invest a lot of time into this stuff. Um, but it is still super useful. Do they license it, or is it just, he just lets everyone use it for free? Uh, I mean, why don't I just take a quick look? It's sure. pretty easy to look it up. Um, it's interesting. I wonder if he, he... I mean, he definitely has to know like how widespread his stuff is. I wonder if he feels like... If, I mean, I'm sure he's quite successful if he's made something that's, that's this popular, but I wonder if he ever feels a well, little bit... It's it's completely free to use. I'm looking right now. This library is available under a free and permissive license, but needs financial support to sustain its continued improvements. Mm -hmm. So he gets support, but it's not like a contract or anything like that. Like he doesn't have companies being like, "Yeah, we want to constantly pay you." Yeah, they just might throw him some shekels every now and then. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting. I wonder. I hope that he's well compensated because I'm sure it. it it must seem like a, a thankless task. For what sometimes. he's provided for the game development studio, it is a shame that he's not like not swimming in it, but isn't like <laughs> just stable. Like, yeah, don't, guys, don't worry. I am financially stable for the next five years to work on this project or, you know, something like that. I think, think, though, I, he's probably spent a lot of his free time on this as well. Yeah. Do you think programmers are, are a generous lot? Do you think they're like the, the type of people who open up their wallets or do you think it's the opposite? 
I think programs become generous once they've got their stable job. Like in the indie scene, absolutely not. <laughs> because they are fighting tooth and nail to get something made. <clears throat> so if they can find something that's good and free, they will just take it and use it. And after they've become successful, maybe they might think of doing some donations or something like that. But that's up until of, that point. It sort of reminds me how I, I was... Um fun employed for like two or three years out of college where I was just working on, <laughs> I was just working on personal stuff. I, I was my parents, so I didn't really have any bills and I was just like, I just want to try different things and see what I enjoy and what makes me happy. Um, so I spent a lot of time like developing my Twitch stream. I spent a lot of time trying YouTube content. I spent a lot of time working on community management and stuff like that. And I grew to a mentality of like, the lowest possible cost in everything ever. And yeah. now I'm making pretty decent money for, for where I'm at in my career. And it's very hard for me to transition out of that mentality. Like I'll still, I'll still be like, I'll buy, I'm planning out my, my groceries and I'll buy like, I'll buy like this much tomato sauce and then I can make food for a week for like $10 or something. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well I, I make enough money to buy good food now. Maybe I should do that. Um, it's it's difficult for me to break out of that, but I've started to make progress with that. I, I um, do get it. Like I will try and track down a lot of open source because as a programmer, open source is just my best friend when it comes to a lot of this stuff. Because I don't I don't really have to worry about it because it's like I might only use it for a day. I don't want to spend like sixty dollars on I don't know a Photoshop license. Let's say not that I use Photoshop, but I don't want to spend like sixty dollars every year on a Photoshop license just to use Photoshop two <laughs> weekends in a year, right? Yeah. It doesn't make sense. So I'll go to like something that's free and open source, like maybe like paint.net or again, it doesn't do everything obviously that Photoshop does, but I don't need it to. And that's something I want to talk, touch on a little bit later in the show. Uh, we, we hinted at it earlier, the, the prevalence of just free everything on the internet and not just, not just tools, like free content, free uh information free uh uh tutorials everything out there it, it's it's crazy how much free stuff is available and like is that a sustainable practice um uh, but i want to talk about it a little bit later because we're never going to get uh, past the introduction if we don't if we don't go down <laughs> the talking list so outside of gaming and programming do you have any like major interests or hobbies that you want to talk about oh that's an easy one uh, the biggest one is swing dancing. Ooh. So it's actually funny enough, a lot of people in the tech sector do swing dancing, at least from, from the male population. Um, I, I would say at least 50% of the guys I know come from IT. That's crazy. In the swing you might community. be the first person I've ever had on the show to mention any sort of dancing. <laughs> well, having said that, though, it might also be specific to Quebec. Uh, as a province, actually, because Montreal and Quebec City are massive on swing dancing. They've got quite, I think we've got two schools in Quebec City. I think there's like five schools in Montreal. And then you've got, if you just go step south down to the U USA, you've got New York, which is not that far away. Mm -hmm. And that's a pretty big scene as well. California is humongous for it from memory. Seattle is got quite a scene but and obviously los angeles is like a huge scene as well but essentially 
I think Canada and USA as a band, it's it's quite quite big. But I mentioned Quebec province because Quebec and Quebec City and Montreal is massive for game development. Mm-hmm. So in my experience, a lot of the people I meet come from IT um, as a field, but that makes a lot of sense because Quebec City and Montreal are a massive IT hub because they get a lot of um, uh, uh, tax breaks, I guess, from the government. Yeah, I wonder why it is, it is interesting because when you think of game development in these large countries, it is, it's like for Canada, it's like Montreal and Quebec. And for America, it's like Raleigh, or sorry, uh, Los Angeles. Um, so I think there's some in. Se- I'm not even sure if there's much in Seattle. Um, and uh, that's San Francisco has got quite San, a few San Fran's got yeah. San Francisco's got some stuff. Um, there's a little bit on the East Coast, but not a lot. Uh, it's very concentrated in these in these small. Austin, Texas has some as well. Um, but yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know. Quite a big one, yeah. I don't know what the main driving factor is behind that. I've heard a lot of different theories. Um, the, the largest one, and I think it's probably the most accurate, is like talent attracts talent, where it's just so much easier to uh, get good game developers when you're around 10 other game developer studios. Because yeah. one thing I've learned about game developers is that they very often switch jobs much more quickly than, than somebody in another industry, like where it's not I, uncommon. I like, to, I like to compare it to like actors mm-hmm. in that fashion. That you get a lot of people go to Hollywood because that's where all the studios are. And then the studios are there because that's where the talent is. And the talent is there because that's where the studios are. So it kind of builds around it. I think Quebec as a province, they've got quite a few because the government is so willing to put down some money for them. And as a result, now that we have a lot of studios here and now it's kind of like that uh, reoccurring pattern. How, how what's, What is cost of living like in Quebec? Is it as egregious as it is in LA? Uh, Montreal is worse than, mm-hmm. not, not than LA, but than Quebec City. Quebec City is freaking amazing. Oh. Um, coming from an, an Australian, coming to Quebec City, it's like, oh my goodness, like my pay is lower, but I save more. Because mm-hmm. yeah. um, Australia, we have very high, um, very high income, uh, pay, uh, very high salary, sorry, but we have ridiculously high rent. Um, to give you an idea, I'm paying about 700 a month for my apartment here. Wow. Uh, Canadian, Canadian to Australian is about one for one. If I was in Australia, I would probably be paying $700 a week for the place that I'm living in right now. Um, that's how ridiculously different it is. So more than half your paycheck every month is probably going to your rent, uh, in Australia. Yeah, that that was something that I saw a lot of in Los Angeles, at least for the west side, where I was um I lived in a house with where a condo with two other people and I was paying $1600 a month for a room in, a master bedroom in a condo. Um that all included. And I was like, yeah, this is just not sustainable. Um so the minute where yeah. I got remote work, I was like, okay, I'm going to leave Los Angeles for now. Maybe we'll come back in the future. Um, I have heard Los Angeles and San Francisco are brutal. For... San Fran's even worse than, than Los Angeles. Because at least in Los Angeles, you have people who would just say, screw it. And they'll live like way outside. They'll live in like the valley or way east side. And they, they either drive or take the train in. Um, and mm-hmm. that can lower cost of living a lot. 
But in San Francisco, like unless you're living in Orange County or something like that, I think it, that's what it's called. Um, you're not going to get anything less than like $3,000 a month for a decent place to live. I, it's, I have, I have heard that the Bay Area in San Francisco is becoming much, much more popular um, for business these days just because it's a lot easier if you want to like live out outside of the Bay Area to then get into the Bay Area versus yeah. trying to get central San Francisco. And, and Google has a massive campus on the... It's If you're not familiar with San Fran geography, and I'm definitely not like super an expert on it, um, there's like, it's, it's weird, but San Francisco is like a Northern peninsula where a bunch of, it's massively urban and super concentrated. And then there's just like, yeah, yeah. It's just like like a tiny little bit over here. But then there's like, there's like a gap and then there's another peninsula, a Northern peninsula. And that's less populated, I think. Um, and that's where like all of the larger studio or all the larger campuses are going. I think Apple has a campus there. Google has a massive campus there. Facebook, I'm sure, probably has one as well. Um, and I think it's just, it's probably slightly more affordable. And also because these companies are investing ridiculous amounts of money in quote-unquote affordable housing for their, for their employees because nobody wants to go there and pay, like you said, half of their salary on, on rent in a shoebox apartment. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough call to make, right? Like... I want to go here because I want to work in this industry, but I don't even know if I can afford the rent there. It's yeah, and there's there's horror. I don't want to badmouth Blizzard, but there's horror stories about Blizzard, um, where their employees would like be living in cars. Some of their lower end employees would be living in cars in the in the parking lot because they couldn't afford rent in the area. Um, and it's just like that's just brutal. <laughs> I feel really bad it's for brutal. that. I mean, uh, it's it's kind of the catch twenty two, right? Of if I was to open a studio. The ideal place to just open somewhere is in a place that doesn't have many of those studios, right? Mm-hmm. For that way, everyone can drive to work. It's super easy. You don't have to worry about where you live. Anyone can kind of do what they want, right? But then you don't have the talent there if yeah. you're living in kind of like some random ass town and you may not even have a good enough internet for it, right? So then if you then go pick these towns, then you've got to kind of pick somewhere that's central, which tends to be downtown. And that's way more expensive, a lot harder to get parking spots. But you hope that the public transport kind of picks up the slack, I guess. I don't know. I had a really interesting conversation with a friend of mine who works for a very, very, very large game studio or a very large company um, where he, we were talking about the prevalence of remote work during COVID. and he put up an opinion which I don't necessarily agree with, but he was very anti-remote work because he basically said that the prevalence of remote work would drive down salaries for people who still had to live in these big cities like San Francisco. Uh, Basically, he was saying, like, I'm not going to be paid the money that I need to live here if somebody who lives in Montana can do my job from Montana. my like i don't the reason that i didn't agree with that was because there's a reason that san francisco is so ridiculously expensive it's because salaries are massively inflated like somebody making $300,000 in san francisco is they're well off but they're not like making $300,000 in in quebec city or or where i live in raleigh that's that would be completely different um 
So is that like a healthy thing? Maybe that should be normalized where super overinflated salaries should be hopefully brought back down into line and maybe the cost of living would go down as well. But who knows? Yeah, it's 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 one of those like weird economic catch-22 things, I feel like, you know, like, yeah, if we bring down the salaries, then other things will come down as well. But it's kind of almost like you're kind of hoping that way. I yeah. Guess. And then you but know. I, I, get, I get someone being worried about the remote work because, yeah, if you've got someone that's got such a low cost of living working remotely, how could you ever compete with them? But I'm not too worried about that because I do think remote work is amazing mm-hmm. and is very advantageous for some people. But I also know that it's not the same as working with someone right next to you. Like, Larry, we've had to learn how to do remote work, which is actually, I think we're already in the advantage because we have five studios, right? We're already kind of doing remote work with each other, right? Um, But you are so more efficient and quicker. And I think the lifestyle that comes from just being able to turn to someone, just be like, I need your hand with this, or I'm going to grab you, you, and you, and we're just going to solve this problem right now. And we can do that because I'm right next to you or you're working on something. And I just happen to glance over there and be like, Oh, I'm going to now give you my opinion on this. You know? Yeah. It's a lot harder. I think to call someone up and just be like, Hey, can I get your opinion on this thing real quick? Cause you don't is, know what they're doing. This has been a conversation probably much expectedly since we've been in COVID for so long. Uh, this is a conversation we've had with tons and tons of guests and everyone's got a little bit of a different, viewpoint on it and i think it really depends on what type of work you're doing um because some people when i've asked that question they they were like yeah oh definitely i i'm 100 down for, for remote work forever because that's just how my job works um i'm not it's not affecting me and then some people like you were saying like it's it's there's never going to be a replacement for being able to sit down and hash something out in person um, I think you make a good point about it really depends on the job. Because I guess me personally, like if I'm working on locomotion, I want to be able to turn to someone and say, pick up the controller or take the keyboard uh-huh. and just tell me what it feels like because I need that feedback right now. Whereas if I build the code, I have to wait for it to get reviewed. It then gets submitted and then it gets built. So it's like probably a day or two later that you finally get your hands on it and you come back to me like, yeah, it doesn't feel good. And it's like, why? Why doesn't it feel good? What are you doing? What about it is that that's not great? And being able to just watch someone play is it's amazing. I have a friend who's really, really, really invested in the VR space. Um, and he is convinced that VR will be the the future of remote collaboration, <laughs> where where he's saying that if you need to have a meeting, um, oh, <laughs> he's bringing out his vibe. I'll just get this box out. Oh boy. Oh man, I'm jealous. I've got you might be able to see it in my background. I've got a little quest too. And that's been my um my experience in VR. It's a great headset, honestly. As much as I love the index, especially with like the finger tracking, I think Mm -hmm. the quest two is it the quest two? Yeah. That's the new face. That's the other one, right? Which Uh is completely wireless and everything. Yeah. I think they're on the right track. Even though I, it doesn't have like graphics fidelity, not no chords is just hands down the winner every time. 
Yeah, so I actually want to go off on a little bit of a VR tangent, and hopefully we don't bore people who aren't interested in VR. Um, I 100% agree. I think that VR really str- VR mass adoption really struggles with um, the barrier of entry, and there's two major barriers of entry. There's the cost, which is always going to be a major factor for 99% of people, and then there's like the the scariness factor. I don't know if that's the scientific term, but somebody coming in and looking at a box like that and saying like, oh man, I've got to set up pay stations. I've got to plug into my $8,000 computer that's going to be able to run these games. And I have like 8,000 wires coming into the back of my headset to plug in and each one of them goes to a different thing. That's going to be really scary for people who maybe aren't super into computers. Um, But the big benefit of the Quest and my family members love, I brought it home for Christmas um, and they were like enjoying it because it was just so easy to, strap on and go and it's even got rudimentary hand tracking without controllers it doesn't work very well they're able to do with what i think it's just two or three it's, cameras it's four it's four cameras one on each corner of the headset and it's ridiculous how well and i know it's subsidized because it's facebook but it's a 300 dollars headset and it's ridiculous what they can do with it um it's definitely i think it's the future of vr just having something very simple and very easy for anybody to pick up and very low cost um and with a little bit of tweaking you can actually stream uh vr games pc vr games to the headset wirelessly and that's how i played half-life alex and it's it's there was no fidelity issues on my end like i I was not thinking that i was like streaming a game sometimes you get that with like a steam link or something you get that choppiness or or input lag but i had nothing like that it was incredible um i think i think we got like my personal prediction is in 10 years, that's where I'm going to see another VR boom because mm-hmm. that's when the indie studios now are probably going to have this shit sorted and have either failed or become sustainable. And I think that's when you're going to see start seeing more Half-Life Alexes again because Half-Life Alex is right now, it's the pinnacle of VR games as far as quality goes. Like story in it, the voice acting, the graphics, the gameplay, everything. It's just top notch. Yeah. Nothing gets close to that right now. And I think they're going to need 10 years to catch up to what Valve essentially just threw down at them. And it will be a lot easier when something like the Quest exists. And I think this was a conversation I had. I, I work in educational technology. So a lot of the people who I talk with are really invested in education. Um, and one of the things that has really brought technology to the masses in, in our woefully underfunded public schools is Google Chromebooks. Chromebooks, um, I think in some situations, they're given for free from Google to these schools. Um, and wow. they're, for those who aren't familiar, they're very low spec, basically tablet laptops. Um, but they get the job done and they bring uh, affordable computers to the masses. And something that we thought would be Google or maybe a different company would release um, the equivalent of like a Chromebook VR headset for schools if they wanted to focus on VR learning, which is something that some people think is going to be the future of distance education because distance education doesn't work for everybody because kids just don't, some kids just don't click with the computer screen. But maybe if you have like a digital classroom environment, maybe that's going to make it different. I don't know. I I don't personally know how I feel about it, but it's an interesting idea. 
I mean, we'll, we'll see when we get there is generally yeah. what I feel. But I think anyone saying that VR is going to go away is an idiot. Yeah. Because how much VR gets used in just, um, just like general companies outside of game dev is ridiculous now. Like people, like especially for simulation training, VR is just a godsend for people because they can actually have someone walk around a space and explore something. Like I can imagine like on a Navy ship, for example, um, you need to learn where all the evacuation points are, right? You can just chuck on your VR headset. You can explore the space really quick. You can find all these evacuation points as an example. Um, and boom, like you did that without ever having to set foot on the ship. Yeah, there's I no think... there's no substitution for the immersion that it can give you. Um, yeah. From even a basic set while before we get into game development really taking off with it. And I don't even think it ever will overshoot the main game development scene, like in like when I mean that like PC or console. Yeah. I don't think it's ever gonna get better than that unless somehow we start getting like actual um feedback from your that yeah that's going to be and i think we're gonna have a lot of people who think it's going to be like like gloves or something that will like give you feedback and stuff i honestly think that it's going to be some sort of brain interface that just tricks your brain into thinking stuff and that's definitely going to be very very far down the line but yeah i honestly think that's what it's going to take to be like to give VR what it what it needs to take over in terms of everything. Like maybe VR will just be everything at that point. But who knows? As, as eccentric as Elon Musk can be, um, and for all the good and the shit that he does, fuck me, he's pushing the bounds, and that's great to see at least. Yeah. Like when he showed off, he was just like, yeah, 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 we've got a microchip in a pig's brain, and you're just like, I'm sorry, you did what? That's insane. <laughs> but so insanely cool at the same time. <laughs> it's crazy how many how many different things that that crazy man is putting money into. Um, well, I, I like to think he's the eccentric billionaire that is essentially what we are, right? It's like, if you gave one of us the amount of money that he probably has from his company, and he's just like, oh yeah, cool. So I have this one successful one, and I really like space. I'm just going to start a space one. Oh, that's becoming successful now. Cool. I'm going to do brain surgery and start seeing if we can augment humans um, more than we already have. I mean, he seems to just be like, I'm just doing my thing. I'm doing what I want to do. And people are just like, yeah, actually, you're doing some pretty cool stuff. So we're going to we're going to fund that. Yeah. Sorry, I apologize. My cat's absolutely freaking the heck out for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> um. So let's let's uh let's actually switch over to I'd love to talk about about VR stuff for the rest of the night, but we have an agenda. Um I actually wanted to talk a little bit about um your education and employment history because I know that you you mentioned a couple of it in in our precinct, but I want to talk a bit about what you did in college and um uh, what you did post college before you joined Larian. So let's talk I guess first, like what degree did you get? So, I mean, if I time travel, the actual degree that I have is in primary school education. Wow. So I'm a trained teacher. <clears throat> I 
don't consider myself still qualified. I would definitely have to go back to school or do like some revision course and get my certification again. Um, because in Australia, you have to, my God, it's been a while. Essentially, you, you have a bar, just like a lawyer, I guess, would kind of. And it's essentially you have to show that you are up to date with the current curriculum. And you do that by showing them lesson plans and activities and even like hours that you've done in schools, which usually comes from your degree, having done um, uh, internships and stuff like that. But as a whole, it's a portfolio that you show them to say, I am current on all the subjects uh, in primary school. And here are the ways that I'm showing you that I'm competent on all these things. But um, yeah, so I trained as a primary school teacher um, back in Australia and it was at the end of my degree, I kind of just went and did a very short certificate course in gameplay programming. It was just like a fun thing to do. Um, and that's kind of where I discovered that I enjoyed it. And so that's when I went to, I guess what the equivalent would be like a community college, I guess. It's not a university, it's not a community college. It's kind of this in-between thing because um, it's private. And I did a advanced diploma in video game programming. And that's from there, I learned how to program number one, but number two is they essentially gave us a beginner course in all the different aspects of video game programming. So we did engine development, we did graphics programming, we did networking, we did gameplay. We learned a little bit about some of the art side and the design side that comes into making video games. But as a whole, it was two years straight. I was at school two and a half days of the week. Um, and the other two and a half days of the week, I you could do what you wanted. I mean, you could work if you needed to. I was lucky enough I didn't, I had my parents supporting me. So I was actually a lot of the time still at the school, just doing my own personal um, studies. Yeah, so I got into the got into the gig through an advanced diploma of video game programming, but I kind of busted my ass because I knew that a lot of studios are looking for a um, computer science degree to be able to get in. Yeah, and that's something that that has been, I think, has been changing a little bit over the course of from the, at least from the people I've talked to. It seems like a lot of people have sort of a start story like you, where they didn't really focus on game development in terms of their primary degree, but then they had some sort of secondary education after that, which gave them at least a, a bit of information about what's going on. Um, so, I mean, so, someone that did a degree in computer science has definitely got an advantage over what I did mm -hmm. because they spend a lot more time on some of the fundamentals that I completely have a lack of knowledge of. Yeah. Like, and if I you think... ask me how, like, the hardware works under the scenes, I could give you a rough idea. But I could not give you probably the details of someone that came from a CS degree. Yeah. And I think um, that probably has a lot more bearing on something that you do where you're an engineer, you're coding and stuff. Um, where I don't think, I don't know if that's necessarily going to be the case for somebody outside of that field. And that's why I love talking to so many different people in game dev because you do get a very wide net of, of individuals where it's not always about coding it's not always about um like animation or or 3d modeling and stuff like that um so yeah it's really interesting to hear that i think something that a lot of people really don't think about at least when they start off 
is game development, or at least being a game programmer, you have to have so many people skills. Like, I have to interact very often with other people to make sure that what I'm doing is what they need. And it's very easy to be kind of like socially separated and just mm -hmm. be like, you tell me what you need and I'll make it and then we're done. But there's so much back and forth that goes on in video games because it's essentially like, you told me what you want. Cool. Now I'm going to explain it back to you. And then you're going to be like, well, that's not what I said. So then you have like that kind of back and forth and actually kind of making a handshaking over exactly what it is that you decided on. And then I'll go do it. And then while I'm doing it, I'll kind of show you bits and pieces and you can be like, at any point, yes, no, that's shit, that's good. And then at the end, I'll give it to you. And then you still need to make that final decision of this, is that what you wanted in the first place? I have to say, I'm incredibly lucky that that is the case because having people on with no, having people on the show with no people skills would be a lot more difficult. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm really lucky that that game dev is so riddled with people who have excellent speaking and social skills because it makes well, my job it, a lot it's, easier. It's one of the ones that they don't tell you about. It's a soft skill that turns out to be very, very important. And you will tend to find people that go into like product, man product managers and um, leads. They tend to be the people that they did have more of those social skills so that they can, for the team members that maybe they don't have those skills as well that they can kind of step in and be that middleman for them yeah to be. um i think the first time i even heard the term soft skill was like in my final year of community college at my professor we were in our we were in our project our senior project class and my professor's like who wants to focus on like the soft skills aspect of this project and like everyone was like what <laughs> they're like can anyone give me the definition of what a soft skill is and I forget what I said, but it wasn't it wasn't like completely accurate. Um, and then I'm like, oh yeah, that that actually does make a lot of sense. Where, because we were all a bunch of computer nerds. Like this was my computer science final project. So we were, we were all people who weren't particularly socially gifted. Um, and luckily, I, I've been uh, blessed enough to have changed that significantly since I was in college. But it's been I think it was that a, changing for the better. That it used to be the kind of this thought that the video gamer was the nerdy white kid that <laughs> sat in his parents' basement, where I think it's, it's been a great thing that we're really starting to see. It's just, it's a hundred percent diverse, obviously, because it's the whole world that does it. So yeah. why wouldn't it be? Yeah. It's, it's great to see people making those strides and making those changes to be, to, to really pioneer and, and changing the image of the industry because yeah, it is, it is, I think people maybe outside of gaming probably still have that stereotype and that, that idea in their mind when they think of like a gameplay developer. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that people like you are willing to come on the show and hopefully, I think I've said this exact same thing last week, make that, make that um, hopefully change that, that idea about the industry because it is, it is difficult. Um, yeah, so after after college, after uni and your postgraduate certificate, um, what job did you get? What did you do? So technically, whilst I was doing my advanced diploma, the last six months, I got lucky enough to do an internship at one of the very few studios that were in the city. 
because um, I come from Canberra, Australia. Um, so it's the capital of Australia, but it does not have many mm-hmm. video game videos available. I think at the time we had 2K and they were working on Borderlands. But like, that was pretty much it. Like, that was the only big studio that we had in Canberra. We have a couple other small ones. And so I got lucky enough to get an internship at one of the small ones. I was there for six, six months. And they were even really nice, where two and a half days of the week was the study stuff. So I had to meet, um, <clears throat> meet the requirements of my, uh, my diploma. And the other two and a half days of the week was paid. Oh, that's sick. Um, yeah, so that was very, very nice. I know it's very different in the USA, whereas we have interns that come on at Larian, but they're full-time paid interns for that period. It's not like part of their stuff is study-based. Yeah. Um, so my one was a an internship as a part of my course rather than an internship post my course. Yeah. Um, but apart from that, my first actual job was at Halfbrick Studios. So, so... Um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about internships because I think that is a, a, a big entry point into the industry for a lot of people. Um, it, there's like a few different, from what I picked up, I was actually never in an internship myself, but from what I picked up, uh, there's like a few different ways that it happens. And, uh, some of them are like summer internships where they'll come in for a couple months over the summer when school isn't running. Um, and I think mm-hmm. those are generally for people who are either sophomore or senior who are still working on their diplomas and stuff. And then like you said, there's like postgraduate stuff where people will come in after they graduate, but still yeah. it won't be like a full-time job. It will be an internship that is hopefully paid. Um, and I think there's a few others, but I don't really know how they work. I should have somebody on who does internship management because I'm sure that'd be a really I, interesting. I don't know about other, other countries, but I know in Australia that if you're doing an, internship as part of your studies i don't think you can be paid for it really but i'm not sure i'm not 100 percent sure on that but i do know that if you did an internship post studies you must be paid like you are not allowed to do an internship for free yeah essentially um it's got to be there's got to be a tie-in somewhere one of the tie-ins might be monetary the other might be it's contributing to your studies but it's got to be one or the other. You can't have, yeah, yeah, come work for us for the summer and we might give you a job afterwards, yeah. but we're not going to pay you for it. I, I think most of the company, most of the people I've talked with, their companies are pretty progressive with their internship programs where it's it's usually decently compensated and it's usually with some sort of expectation of um, further employment if it works out. Um, so mm-hmm. I think that, might be a little different than other countries and then also other industries. I'm sure it's very different interning at like a, uh, Cisco or something like that versus Riot Games or, or Larian Studios or something like that. Um, speaking of which, does Larian Studios have any studios in the United States? No, no, we do not. We're excluded. I don't blame you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, I think, I think that's really just comes down to where Sven wants to open studios. The, the great thing about Larian is, my goodness, we are um, very diverse. Mm-hmm. Like, we've got multicultural 
that's just the biggest tick in the book because every studio we just bring people in from around that country right so we've got um people from usa and canada obviously that working at our studio and then within canada we've got the english canadians and the french canadians that work at the studio i mean i personally i'm an australian working in the canadian studio so you got that side as well so i mean i like to think of each studio will just draw people in surrounding them so especially when you've got again they're pulling people from all the european countries they're pulling them right into the Right into the I'll look up where Ghent is. I have no idea where that is. Has <laughs> uh, it been Belgium? Is that correct? Nice. I know some people from Belgium. I think I think Larry in Belgium is like one of the few bigger studios. Like, there's not many studios in Belgium. Belgium, I don't really know what goes on there. If I'm honest, I have sort of these pre. <laughs> pre-developed notions about many European countries. Um, but for Belgium... It's I, just... I can probably say some things that will just insult some of my co-workers <laughs> who are probably watching right now, actually. But I do know they are very passionate about their beers, their fries, and their waffles. Well, um, yeah. I didn't want to say waffles because I feel like that'd be like horribly stereotypical. <laughs> uh, but they, I, have, I have a particular friend that He's so passionate about how the Belgian waffle is the only correct waffle. Um, something to do with the sugar grain that they use. He he will he'll talk you talk your ears off about it. Um, but something that I did learn there was that the one of the big reasons their chips are so good is because they double fry them. So chips for an American would be French fries, right? Uh oh yeah right okay so. As an Australian, <laughs> I will call chips for two things. There's the chips that you get in the packet, like a Dorito chip. Uh -huh. And then there's the chips that you would get, I guess, which you had said before, like the French fries. Um, for me, that's, it just has two meanings. Um, Do you use context clues to figure them out? Really the context, which <laughs> you're talking about. Like, I remember when I was back at, um, when I was studying, we had a local takeaway shop that we could go to. And so we were just like, yeah, you want to go get some chippies, which it might be what we call it at the time. And chippies, right, obviously associates with hot chips in a packet, French fries style. Um, I, I couldn't explain how to differentiate about which I'm talking about. You just at know. Any one point. You either know you or just you don't. Know. Yeah. And if there's any, any question about it, when it appears in your face, you're like, oh, okay, now I understand. I apologize if this is, this is horribly inaccurate, but most of my Australian culture intake comes from the comedy group Auntie Donna. Um, I am so happy that it does come from them <laughs> because they are such a personal favorite of mine. <laughs> I, love I actually them, got right? to meet um, Mark when I was down in uh, Paxos. I almost convinced Mark to come on this show. Like, I have no idea why, because he's not a game developer, but I'm like, maybe maybe you can talk about something funny. So it's great. He yeah. was down at Paxos, um, um, heckling with, uh, no, he wasn't heckling, but I'm pretty sure he was down there supporting for Auntie Donna, trying to get people to um, come, and, come online and say hi, and essentially, right. But I couldn't believe it when I found out that they were really hitting big with the United States. Yeah, oh, it's it's crazy. I have I have a friend group who 
is the same friend group who's very into Divinity and Baldur's Gate. Uh, if you're watching, hello guys. Um, but they they love Into Donna. It's it's great to have people who I who share the the same comedy. Um, because it is an interesting taste in comedy. It's not for everybody. Uh, it's definitely not for everyone. But if you had to watch one video which summarized Australian culture, it would probably be the dad one. I think it was like chuffed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm chuffed. I'm chuffed. That is that was a good one. That just rings so true on so many levels, and so many like little inside jokes that they have on that comes directly from Australian culture. Did you watch the Netflix special that they put out? Still haven't watched it. I've kind of been saving it for just like a really <laughs> depressed, rainy day. Because I, me and my mates used to just watch the absolute shit out of their 1998 series. Mm-hmm. That's a great series. Uh, one of my favorites of them all. Um, and now it's kind of just like, you kind of just save Auntie Donna for when you're just really having a bad day. Because nothing picks me up more than watching those guys just goof around. It's really interesting. They they take a lot of the skits that they've done in past videos and then from their live show and they sort of repackage it into this weird uh Netflix special situation. Yeah. And then they also it also feels like they Americanized it a little bit. So I think you might actually get a kick out of that seeing how how they manage to Americanize any of their humor because it's it's really I, bizarre. When, when I can, I try and share Auntie Donna with some of my Canadian Belgian friends and you get a lot of mixed reactions. It's just like either it is, it's like you said, it's, it's a hit or a miss mm-hmm. on if someone's going to enjoy it and you show it to someone, they're just like, yeah, that was cool. <laughs> and you're like, okay, we'll never watch that again. That's fine. <laughs> You have to be very secure in your friendship with that person if you're sharing specific videos. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't know how Australian comedy turned out that way, but I mean, Auntie Donna is probably the most aggressive version of that comedy. But I would say all Australian comedy, you can find the roots in in what Auntie Donna does. Yeah, I love I love them. I don't want to talk about them too much, but I do I do really enjoy them. So if you enjoy. I almost want to I almost want to compare it to if you're more familiar with like British humor it's like British humor if you let it sit in a box for like 30 years and and just get I mean that's pretty accurate if you let British humor sit in a hot tin box I mean that's essentially what Australia is right that's true oh boy wow I will say something that really I've, I've kind of discovered like Every time you mention you're Australian, first two things that people react with are, <clears throat> how hot is it? And number two, everything's trying to kill you, so how do you survive? Um, which is always, it's an interesting one, because then I just reflect back at them, like when I came to Canada, it's like, so you worrying about dying a spider <laughs> is like me worrying about being mauled by a bear every day. It's just, it doesn't really make sense. Like, they're there, and you might see one, but... That's about the extent of it, unless but, you're like deliberately trying to get mauled by a bear. It's really interesting too, because in Australia, something that I learned recently, um, like ninety five percent of the population lives in the very outer, very edge of the continent. Yeah. So yeah. there's like very little going on inside the the hot death death desert uh, in the middle. Ninety percent of Australians live at the beach. Like, yeah. let's just put it that way. It's crazy. Um, I even saw that there was like ideas for plans for like digging a trench through it to 
spread ocean water <laughs> to be like trying I've to make never heard that maybe that's maybe that's total bs um but i i saw yeah, that somewhere like the Panama Canal of australia but it would yeah. take like a thousand it would take it would take a lot longer um but it was just like it was like there's nothing that can do anything in the middle of australia because it's 45 degrees c and just well we actually it. have quite a few towns in there but um, Cooper Beatty is probably one of the most well-known ones because that's an opal mine in Australia and they build their houses mm-hmm, quite mm-hmm. literally into the ground or into the hills. Yeah, I think um, I saw a, a Tom Scott video about them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the place where it's just filled with holes. Like, mm-hmm. they have signs which is like, do not walk backwards because you could be trapped forever. And just, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> that's terrifying. Yeah. I think that's the one. No, actually, there's a smarter everyday one as well because he did one on Cooperpedia as well, um, where he actually goes into one of these holes and you can see how they get oh, yeah. out. Yeah, I think um, I saw that one as well. Yeah, but it's actually a pretty common occurrence that when you build a house in Cooperpedia, the money you spend to rent the excavators, most likely you will make that money back from all the opal that you find from wow. digging out your house. Well, that is a selling point for developing an area. I'm sure people yeah, you in America wish they could do that. Yeah, <laughs> you could get screwed and not find a single opal when you're digging out your backyard. Um, I think we got a little off topic. <laughs> Just a little, right? So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about. Um, uh, sorry, what was the studio name that you joined? Halfbrick. Halfbrick. Do you want to talk anything about them? Yeah, I mean. They were a great first studio to start off with. Um, they were very different to Larian as well, because essentially what we had was small teams of about 10 people. We would work on a single IP. So my team, we were working on Jetpack Joyride. We were the team. I came on as a support team. So the game had already been made by other developers, and we were there essentially extending the lifetime of that game. Mm-hmm. So we introduced like a bunch of different game modes. I think we did... Oh my goodness, what were they called? Bling It On was one. And there was like a double currency weekend sort of thing. Um, We did... Okay, everyone knows Flappy Bird. What they don't realize is that Jetpack Joyride did Flappy Bird before Flappy Bird. Um, There's like the the metal bird. I can't even remember what it's called, but the metal bird in that. So we made a mode explicitly where it was you were just in that bird. Mm-hmm. and just going around like that we did like a fruit ninja frenzy version where um we replaced all the coins with fruit and so that you would like have to smash through all the fruit and stuff like that we did like these small content updates essentially to just try and keep people coming back to the game and we would cycle the ad providers essentially that was like half my job was switching out ad providers um for who was paying the most money from memory um I'm pretty sure half of the install size of that game was different ad providers. Like, wow. Because we had like ad provider libraries. They are like quite a cu- few couple of megs. Like, I, I think it's not, it's not, it's oh, not sorry, streamed yeah. in. No. Okay. So the ads are streamed in, but the libraries for the streaming and connecting to their services tend to be like 10 megabytes. Wow. Okay. Just, just the library, just to just, Put it on your app that's it um so then once you have like seven or eight of them and you pick whichever is most applicable at the time then 
suddenly, yeah, your install size is increased by 80 megabytes, which is a big deal on a mobile that's what I was just about to ask, actually, because we talked about this a little bit before the show uh, about like the art of of designing with limitations of uh, size. How big of a deal is install size to like a mobile game? And I, I think this has probably changed a little bit in the past five yes. years. People don't realize how old the phones are still being used, mm-hmm. um, especially in India. Oh, the yeah. phones yeah. being used there are so incredibly basic and they also have because like a a medium income there is so so low that the in-app purchases over there look like it's a one cent purchase wow sort of thing because essentially from what i remember is they don't work on like a credit card system with a lot of their mobile phones you'll find that a lot of the payments that you get come from like prepaid cards so they might have like a $20 prepaid card and that's going to last them for the next couple months. So if they're going to do an in-app purchase, it needs to be within like the 10 cent range. Otherwise they, they quite literally cannot afford it. I mean, yeah. of course it makes sense because like the, the rupee to the US dollar is going to be very, very different. Um, but the install size for that is a huge deal because it's got to run on a very, very old phone. They don't have big download limits um, if you're working on a prepaid plan. So something that's like 100 megabytes, they probably won't download that. Yeah, um, that makes a lot well. of sense. So so this is probably outside the scope of, of this talk, but what makes a company want to, um, want to design a product for the Indian install base? Because they're potential income is so or their potential spending is so low is it just because there's so many dang people yeah india i think is going to start being targeted a lot more just like china tends to be because the amount of people there is it's insane Mm -hmm. Uh, and if you can if you can fit into their market so give them something that they actually want to pay for then you will make a lot of money over that compared to say the united states or the western um culture yeah i mean china itself right they have such a massive their own world and community and that is fully sustainable within their own country because they have that many people for it yeah and that that's really interesting too because um a lot of the guests that we have on the show are from riot games and something that people who play any of the riot games games might not realize even though it's been sort of widely publicized is um a vast majority of people who play riot games are from china there it's 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 something like 70 30 or something like that um where where the entire western world and everything apart outside of it are dwarfed by the the asian install base so when people are like talking about how content may be more geared towards like anime fans or or uh chinese fans and stuff like that you have to realize that that makes a lot of sense when you're dealing with 70 to 80 percent of your player base your paying player base being chinese or, or asian yeah exactly. um it's crazy it, it's and that's that's why i think um not to get off topic the mobile player base has been so targeted by these companies over the last few years we have every major game studio coming out and making a mobile port of their game you have like call of duty mobile PUBG mobile uh, league of Legends just released their mobile game um because it, it's, it's it's an interesting situation, right? It's like yeah. 
are they actually trying to make a game for the mobile market or are they just trying to cash in or are they just trying to make a market yeah i don't know yeah um, it, it can be hard like one can lead to the other so you can't really fault a company for trying to dip their toes in something new right yeah i myself am i'm a pretty hardcore pc purist as i think a lot of the people who play league of legends are um so it is it is interesting to see that spread to uh, a user base of people who may not uh, have really ever played like a PC game before. So it, it's, I definitely don't begrudge them that, but it is interesting. It, it is a little scary to be seen as maybe not the primary customer of a, of a product anymore. Um, and I think that's I think, what I think okay. PC games as a whole <clears throat> sometimes have a very hard time imagining that someone else plays something different. I mean, I know I am a PC gamer at heart, but having said that, I've had my periods where I was playing on a shitty laptop mm-hmm. or I was only playing Xbox. And there was a period of my life where I was only playing mobile, mobile phone games um, because that's it's kind of it's really about what you can afford and something great that the mobile phone uh, mobile phone world is that you have so many games available for free yeah. and all you have to pay is a little bit of advertisement. Yeah, and that's... Okay, I want to I want, screw it. I'm going to talk about it because I didn't want to get, get into this until later, but I feel like we've been hinting at it so long. I want to talk about free stuff online. Um, yeah, it's crazy. Like, like, the mobile games industry and so many industries are propped up on the, frankly, insane amount of spending that advertisers want to spend on getting their products out to people. Um, YouTube is an almost entirely ad-supported platform. And they're actually profitable now. They weren't for years and years and years, but they are now. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm willing to bet 95% of their revenue comes from advertising, um, which another 5% comes from different sources, probably YouTube Premium and yeah, stuff like that. It makes you wonder, though, like where does that income come from? Is it, is it from the advertisement? Or is it, well, like other avenues of advertisement that you don't necessarily see? Yeah, because I know that like privacy is such a huge deal these days that we're trying to sort out. Um, it's scary. Actually, if we take a very quick pause, just so I can get some more water. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. I'll be right back. I'll talk about. Uh, I'll talk about my cat. Uh, I got a cat. He's. Uh, if you've been watching the video portion of the podcast, uh, you may have seen him zooming around in the background. He's been a real pain in the butt, but he's very cute, so I like him. Oh, um. And I've been sort of trying to get acclimated to owning a cat because I've never had a cat before. So that's been an interesting portion of my life. Um, if you have any cat advice, please uh, join Discord, discord.gg slash Nighthawk, and let me know. I'd love to hear your friendly cat advice because this guy's driving me a little crazy. But he's very cute, so I like him anyway. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't talk about myself enough. Maybe we'll start doing like a Bill Burr style of podcast where I just sit by myself and talk about random things that I've heard throughout the week. That'd be interesting. When I can't get any more guests on the show, I'll just, uh, I'll just do that. I'll just talk to myself. I wish there was an easier way for me to pause the show and resume it, but I don't think there really is any way for me to do that. So now I just have to talk to myself <laughs> for a few minutes. If you can talk, if you can talk in a deeper voice than normal to show your cat who's the boss. Kitty, I think I'd freak him out if I did that. 
So yeah, I've been playing, um, for those of you who don't know, I switched to Night Shift at my current job. And that gives me a little bit more time to, when things are chill, to play some low-stress, low-involved games. So I've been playing a little bit of uh, Hollow Knight again, replaying that. It's very cool. Enjoying um, revisiting that game. Hollow Knight was a huge deal to me in 2019. I think I played through it two times in a row. And I just never stopped. It was just such a great experience for like two weeks. Hey, welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry about that. No problem. Um, you got very thirsty talking. <laughs> uh, I think we were talking about YouTube. Are we talking about advertisement? So, or are we talking about free content? Yeah, I think. What, what's the cost, right? Uh, how much all mm. this free stuff? Um, I, I, I love it. It's it's interesting. It's got. I mean, it, it has to be at least somewhat sustainable, or else it wouldn't still be going on. Because advertising has been supporting free content for a long time. Television, radio, um, newspapers. I mean, that's all been supporting advertising forever. And now we've reached a medium where the the cost to deliver advertisements to people is so low that it only has to make a very little bit of money to be lucrative. Um, and I think that's like the entire idea behind free stuff online being supported by ads. I mean, the big one is you just need numbers. Mm -hmm. that's, that's all you really need for advertisement to be sustainable. <clears throat> um, I mean, like with the mobile market, everything we did was about player retention. Like as long as we could get people continually coming back to the game that we had, then we were making advertisement revenue off them. And that yeah. wasn't keeping the company um, sustainable, essentially. It was, it was, it's paying our income, right? Paying our salaries, sorry. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's this crazy world of what are you willing to pay for versus what are you not willing to pay for, but you're willing to watch an ad for. Some things I feel like it's just like I never want it to be advertisement-based. Mm -hmm. Like my Netflix subscription, for example, right? I don't want there to be an advertisement version of that because I don't want to watch ads yeah. in the middle of my TV show, right? I'm very happy to pay that subscription amount. That means I get um, this streaming sort of thing. But at the same time, I love being able to try something for free. Like the barrier to entry to stuff these days is so little, thankfully, because of advertisement. Um, being in place. Yeah, it, it's it's crazy. I think people don't really realize, and and it's it's really interesting that we're talking about like Netflix being a, a subscription based service because the advertise the amount of advertisements that it would take um to recoup the cost of like a Netflix subscription for them would be insane. You'd have to watch like hours and hours and hours and hours of advertisements every month to make up that $10, $15 thing. Cause, cause we touched on it a little bit earlier, but, um, uh, to make that cost back an ad, an ad makes like maybe 10 cents. If that, no, like way less than that per person who's watching it. Um, I don't know what the, what the, it's very different depending on what it, like, it's so variable depending on what uh platform it is and what kind of content it is. From what country they come from, what time of year it is, what uh, 
yeah, it, I mean, there's so many different factors that go into it, but the average income from me sitting down and watching a pre-roll ad on YouTube is so, 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 so small compared to a $12 a month subscription fee. So that, that's the big thing though, is like, you got to make that cost analysis because I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if Netflix turned around one day and went, yep, we're completely free now. Um, all you have to do is watch ads because they might make the decision of like, if we go free with ads, we will have like a thousand percent more people watching our stuff. And even though we lost that $30 per person, it's way more than covered well, by the amount of people extra that we have. That's now. an, I mean, that's an easy solve in both ways. And I, I'm really surprised that they haven't done it already where they, they offer a tiered subscription like Hulu does where you get it for a free or for a reduced cost with ads. And then if you mm -hmm. really, really, really hate ads, you can pay an extra whatever amount month to, to not see ads anymore. And that's like a perfect world for advertise or for, for content producers because they get both a massive install base of being free and a massive revenue of people who are willing to spend a little bit of extra money to not see ads anymore. Um, I think, I think it uses generally a bit, they've been stung by it a little bit though, because like you look at like say YouTube, mm -hmm. uh, or even like if we go back to the days of Foxtel, right? I'm not even familiar like, with what that is. <laughs> Wait, Foxtel is not an American thing. I, I mean, it could be, I just don't know what it is. Oh, okay. So Foxtel for an Australian is cable TV. Okay. Okay. So like I pay for TV subscriptions, but not that it's something I've ever done or my family did, but it's kind of this idea of like, I'm paying you money to use your service. Mm -hmm. Why the fuck are you showing me advertisement as well? Like it's, it's something I love about Netflix is I click on the movie and that's it. I just get the movie. There's no pre trailer, uh, preview stuff about some other things like they used to put on DVDs back in the day. Right. Yeah. Um, I think Netflix now does the end. They might just show you like three movies related to what you just watched, but that's about it. Yeah. Like, they're so not intrusive. It's so interesting that you bring up cable because um, I, it's, is is incredible to me. And I, I don't know if it's something that like, we're looking back at it from the future and it's like, oh yeah, that's just how things were back then. But I don't know how it is in Australia. In America, cable is prohibitively expensive. It's like 60 to $80 it really a month. It was it, insane. Barely anyone did it. $80 a month for, for cable network TV that, that is riddled with advertisements. 20, 30, 40% of the, the stuff that you're watching is going to be advertisements. Like, and how yeah. does that, is that just the companies being incredibly, incredibly greedy or cost cost driven? Uh, maybe, or is it is that the true price of delivering this service? And we're just used to it being so low because it's being sub uh, subsidized by so many different things. I don't know, but it's like it is insane to me that you would pay eighty dollars a month for watching twenty percent ads. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, coming back to the point of like talking about. It really just comes down to like, you just find companies I think that you trust for this stuff. Um, and I think a lot of companies, they try and build on that trust. I know prior to um, Cyberpunk, people had a lot of trust for CD Projekt Red. Poor those guys, um, man. 
they they really built a lot of trust with by releasing all those free DLCs. Um, was it free DLCs? Yeah, they they did pretty much everything was free for which I think Blood and Wine they, they, was they cost. I do remember yeah, they, that they did paid, but I think it was like very reasonably priced, and they often had yeah. often had sales and stuff. But they they had a lot of content that went with the game, and then that came post game, um, that you got for. This is essentially the bang for your buck, right? So yeah. people are very, very happy to throw down that money because they know it's it goes a long way. Um, I know Larian, I don't know if we have as good a reputation for it, but I do know that we do have a bit of a reputation for we make quality games and we're not going to screw you over. We're not going to try and be like, hey, we released the game, but it's you know missing some of its content. I know Ubisoft for a while, they were under a lot of flack for that, for microtransactions in their games. Yeah, um, and that I think that stems from. I do to to walk. I think it stems from the fact, like we were talking about before, that Ubisoft does have like eight thousand people or something working at their company. It's it's a ridiculous amount of mouths to feed. So maybe sixty dollars. Right? Like, yeah, they've got so many people they got to feed. They need to make that money back, otherwise their entire thing shuts down. Yeah, right? like they have to make the safe call. They can't all the time like invest in ridiculously over the top in intrinsic details. Once you start trying to go that broad spectrum, you have that many people, you you kind of start getting locked out of choices, I think. Yeah. And and it's something that's very interesting that I see talked about a little bit is the cost of a game has really not changed over the course of the last twenty years. In fact it's average on average gone down. Um, no, no, it's actually Sorry, sorry. The, okay. The cost on my end, the consumer's Oh, cost, right. Okay. That's yeah. what you're saying, yeah. The cost has gone down on average in terms of like sales and indie, indie titles being cheaper and stuff like that. But For inflation... development? Yeah. Costs have gone through the fucking roof. Inflation is a thing, so that's like... Itself is going to be massively more expensive than it was. And then the scale of these projects has just gone up so, so much. Um, but on the other end of that stick because that sounds like a very depressing stick, like games should cost $200. Um, we have way more people playing games these days and buying games. So there is it's a balance. It, it's an economy of scale where the cost of making the games has gone up so much, but more and more and more and more people are buying the games. So where does that balance yeah. out? But then you also have people with 100 developers, a small studio, making a game for $60. Versus people with 8,000 developers making a $60 game. Um, and even if the 8,000 developer game sells eight times as many copies, their costs are 80 times higher. So they have to make up that money with maybe microtransactions or collector's editions or whatever. Um, yeah. It was something we were talking about the show is you sometimes wonder where these games that have microtransactions is. Why do they have it? And- mm-hmm. Sometimes you wish the companies would actually tell you, just like, yeah, we do it because yeah. that's actually where we make our income stream. The base game, it made us some money, but it didn't. It doesn't cover the money that we require. I think, like for example, like Rainbow Six Siege, I think that has quite a few microtransactions in it. They've yeah. got like expansion passes and battle passes, and they've got the packages that you can open and stuff like that. They've basically but, switched to a free-to-play market. Almost. I don't know yeah. if the game itself is free, but the 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 monetization model is basically the same as like a game like League or Fortnite. But it's interesting because you wonder is like 
okay, sure that we have this and people obviously seem to be willing to pay that money. It's, it's, it's keeping it afloat. And because of that, they're able to try more experimental things on the side. Like I know Ubisoft did a child of light um, back in the day. Not that it was that long ago, but I don't think that would have ever been made under an old Ubisoft model. Um, so it's it's quite possible maybe that this these microtransactions leave room for stuff like that. Yeah, maybe the the Assassin's Creeds and the Ghost Recons and the um, uh, Far Cry games produce enough money to let more. I don't want to say indie because it's not an indie game, but more indie style type of content being made by these larger yeah. studios. It, it is interesting. I think Nintendo does a lot of stuff like that too, where Zelda and, and Mario make a lot more money yeah. than um, something way... I don't know. I'm not actually a big Nintendo fan other than those large games. So I'm not familiar with some of like the smaller titles, but something like Yoshi's Island 4 probably doesn't make as much money as, as Mario Odyssey. Um, yeah, I mean, you could look it that way. That's the thing. Nintendo has always been more about catering to a much more casual audience. Mm-hmm. I mean, Animal Crossing, right? That's just absolute insanity. I mean, it's great for Nintendo. They they they've got a game that people clearly enjoy, mm-hmm. um, and they understood the market that they were trying to make for it. I, I think that's part of the thing I love about game development is no matter how core the games are that you see coming out in every year, everyone is completely have their expectations subverted with a new game that comes out. And everyone's just like, Oh my God, I didn't know I wanted that. Yeah. But now I see it. My God, I got to play it. Um, and it's usually small studios that are able to surprise people these days with that stuff. Yeah. And I, I love the fact that it's not just focused on one thing. Uh, I'm a big league of legends gamer. Uh, and that is pretty much one of the more hardcore games you can get into on PC in a free-to-play environment. Like, there's not much else out there that's going to be have this high of a barrier of entry. Um, and it's still, it's still the most popular game in the world, and, and a lot of that does come from the fact that the Asian install base is massive. Um, but it's crazy that a game like League of Legends and a game like Animal Crossing can exist in the same medium and be wildly <laughs> successful. It's it's even like a lot of there's a lot of overlap between the people who play them. Like you you would think that somebody who enjoys torturing themselves on league for 5 hours a day wouldn't want to sit down and catch a fish or build a house or something like that, but people like it. So. I, I definitely I definitely some days wish that we did have the analytics on mm-hmm. every single person that plays video games. And you could see what sort of people play this and what sort of people play that and where's the crossover and what sort of like relations that you can make between groups of people and or if there are any or if it's literally just so scattergun that it the only real connection is between like Western versus Eastern. Yeah, um, I, I have no like idea. People. I'm sure somebody out there is working very, very hard on trying to build those analytics, but it's difficult. And they can make that mint dollar selling yeah. it to every other company. Well, I'm sure Riot Games has been working so hard on trying to diversify their portfolio in terms of games because they do want to hit more people. Maybe they're they maybe maybe they see the end of the League of Legends market in the future and they want to try and get more uh successful games like 
I, I don't okay. know. Blizzard's still going on with World of Warcraft, so how? How is Blizzard still going on with World of Warcraft? <laughs> how? Okay, this is the okay. I, I'm I'm going to preface this with I am not a WoW fan. Twenty years. Two thousand six. I think two thousand. Wait, when did it's WoW launch? Two thousand four. So just over seventeen okay. years. Just under sixteen years. Um, okay. so. Not a WoW fan. I apologize for any WoW fans in chat. How on earth did Blizzard convince people? They didn't convince people. People convinced them that re-releasing WoW Classic was like, how was that profitable? How is re-releasing a 16-year-old game in, in basically the state that it was 16 think, years ago? I think the most interesting part about this is probably the most number of people that were playing it are people that are, were already playing it as yeah. well. There, uh, I, I'm I mean, willing to I bet, and this is. I was is, part of the wave that came back and played WoW Classic, but I did not stick around. Yeah, did you play WoW in 2004? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was two years of my life were <laughs> consumed by that game. Um, I mean, I had a lot of fun back in the day, but then again, I I, I imagine the business strategy that they settled on was we re-release it, we make it as part of like. You pay for the main game, you get the classic as well. Yeah. And then the hope is that with people playing the classic again, they'll be like, oh, yeah, I've been enjoying WoW. Maybe I'll see what they're doing in the new stuff now. Yeah. I, I, I'm i going to speak wildly unfounded analytics because I have no access to this information, but I'm willing to bet 98% of people who played classic extensively, more than a few hours, um were hardcore wow fans back in the day like i don't think many people came in who were brand new to wow and were enjoying that experience because i tried it i think think the people that came back in and they had never sorry people that came in who had never played before were probably very quickly ushered out (laughs) to how brutal that game is yeah from a a current standpoint like you had to just grind and grind and grind for hours and hours with very little reward uh, to your name. Like, oh, you want to do this dungeon? Cool. Now you got to wait around for an hour in hope that someone else shows up to play. It's like, it's, it's okay. So I, I played for a couple, uh, probably like five or six hours with a few friends who were hardcore WoW fans. They played, played WoW back in the day. So they, they've been playing this game for off and on for 16 years. Um, and my entire small modicum of fun that I, I got out of that five hour play session was conjuring water as a mage and just giving it to people because people were like <laughs> in the starting area, people were like, I need mana. So I'm like, here's water, here's water for you. Here's water. That's the entire a lot of um, links to D and D between world of Warcraft classic mm-hmm. because I think it's the persistence of, I have this character for a very long time. So everything I do for it, Feel substantial. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I think but then, then there's, there, but there's, there's that also, there's the opposite side of that where everyone in who plays WoW, they're like, oh yeah, I'm starting a new character. It's going to be fun. They just do a one off of like a, a gnome sorcerer or whatever. I'm sorry for you yeah. fans out there. Um, and I don't know how this works, but if they just play like a brand new character and then just throw it away at the end, that doesn't like really impact your main character right there's no crossover between that is there like a no 
there is some because sometimes like there is the investment of it wouldn't be a throwaway character is kind of the point it would be mm. okay i've been playing this character for a while i'm very used to this play style so then i'm gonna make this mage and i'm just gonna give it a go and maybe i enjoy it and then when i'm feeling not feeling like i don't want to play my main character i can just level that mage up yeah. And eventually you reach a point where it's helpful at high enough level that you can start doing some interesting things. Um, I, yeah, I think I, mean, I, think I just missed that. Memories over that, but most of the memories came from the fact that you had these guilds and you had a lot of people that you played with. Yeah. It was a very, very bonding experience repeatedly doing these things with these people. I think that's probably some of the main reason that people still play games like 2007 RuneScape and stuff like that. Where yeah, me trying to go in and play that game today, it just looks it looks like the worst game ever to me. I'll be honest, but <laughs> people love it. People still play it today. They spend hours and hours and hours grinding woodcutting level to ninety nine. Um, I don't know. That's that's never, that's never the great it. thing. <laughs> that's the great thing about gaming. If if you want to do that, you, it's your choice, and I can't stop you. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean that's the that's the great part right is i don't have to limit what someone else does to find enjoyment in video games like you playing runescape doesn't affect me in the slightest yeah apart from when it's like a group of friends and you're trying to decide what you want to play today yeah. <laughs> i want to play runescape someone is like let's play wow and you're just like fuck like no please please <laughs> can we just play something we can all get into no yeah it's uh, brutal um oh boy that was a that was a should tangent. We, should we switch back out of our tangent? Because that yeah. went on pretty after after Halfbrick, did you go directly to Larian? Yeah, so Halfbrick was an interesting one. So it was my first first job job. So I spent six months gearing up. I generally find I I have like a six month period where I'm gearing into the job that I'm doing. Uh-huh. But I was there there for two years. I'd settle in pretty well and I kind of reached this point of realizing if I don't make a change, then my programming is just going to be stagnated and I'm not going to improve as a programmer or get any better. Um, it's nice having a paycheck, but I don't want to settle on my paycheck yet. I want to kind of chase chase the dream, I guess, is a way of saying it. I really want to be, I'm chasing the, I'm going to be the best programmer I can possibly be, like world-renowned programmer, not that, that's actually what I had in sight, but just that I knew I wanted to be a programmer that had enough experience under their belt that if you're like, hey, do you want to open a studio? I'd be like, yeah, yeah, actually I could do that. Um, and I have enough confidence in my skills that, to do that. Um, yeah, so two years, they were offering voluntary redundancy. Essentially, they were looking to downscale their studio, but you can't just fire someone because you feel like it. Yeah. So they said, if anyone wants to take it, we'll give you a pretty sweet payout, which is, I think it's a mandatory, there is a mandatory minimum that they have to pay you out if you take an option like that. And, but they said, no matter what, the minimum you'll get is $10,000. So for me, I think that was like an extra grand or two on top of what I would have gotten anyway, um, with all my like, um, personal leave or sick days and stuff like that all banked up. Um, so yeah, so I took that because that's kind of what was in my head at the time is I wanted to leave the company anyway. Um, I kind of bummed around for two months. 
um, moved back in with my parents during that time and essentially spent a month studying how to do interviews. I, I very explicitly remember I had an interview with the company Juggernaut, I think they were. I'm trying to remember what game they're working on that at the moment now. I cannot remember the company's name. I think they were working on a game called Dreadnought or Juggernaut or something like that. Um, and they were gearing up for a new game. And I did an interview with them. And they're like, yeah, 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 we're looking for a UI programmer. And I'm just like, oh, okay. Well, UI is not really my thing. I mean, I can do it, but it's not really my thing. And at some point during the interview, we were talking about programming languages that I knew. And I was like, I was kind of just listing off whatever I could. And I said <laughs> HTML, which for any programmer out there understands that HTML is not a programming language. Yeah. It's just a markup um, that you use on top of other things. Um, and they kind of turned to me and they said, just like, you think HTML is a programming language? And it was very quick. I was like, okay, I got to abort this interview as oh, quickly no. as possible. All coming back so in that's my like eyes. That's like the red flag for anybody in that. If 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 you're into in a programming interview, I was spewing a lot of shit because oh. I just wanted a job in somewhere new, and I was willing to take everything. Um, um man, I, I had a similar experience like that. I had an interview with Twitter, and um, I was in the first screening call, and midway through the call, I think we both realized that I was not qualified for this position. <laughs> <laughs> and she just kept like asking me questions about like this company that I'd been working for. And this company that I'd been working for was like a very, very small thing. It was like basically a personal project between a few people. And I was like yeah. basically the entire support stuff department. Um, and <laughs> it was just really awkward. I'm like, yeah, there's no way that this is going past step one, but she was very nice about it. She was like, Oh, well, let you know. Something I think I've learned as I've grown wiser is that, when I, when I first started off, my portfolio, the way it looked was I listed every single programming language I had even touched. Like, it could have been for a day. Like, I've used HTML for a day, and I put that on my portfolio because I wanted a job. And I wanted a job so badly, I would have taken a job in no matter what yeah. it was. And then I think... After half brick, I got a bit wiser and I took off a bunch of stuff off it, but there was still plenty of things that shouldn't have been on there. And I definitely think now that I've been in the industry for so long, if I, as a beginner, went back and made my portfolio again, all I would list would be C++ beginner. And that's about <laughs> it. And the rest of my entire thing would be, here's a portfolio of code I have actually written and projects I've actually worked on, um, please give me a job in that fashion. Well, you you're you're you have something that's so valuable um, that a lot of people who probably don't have when they're starting out. You have hindsight. what's that? <laughs> hindsight. Hindsight. Well, yeah, that's that's one of them. But you have two very large games on your resume. Yeah, I mean now now it's ridiculous. I think. I'm at a stable point in my career where I can't get any job I want, of mm -hmm. course, but I could get a lot. You could and go, that, you could go a lot of different places if you wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, and that, do you think that's healthy for the industry where 
the bar is so high at the beginning, and I don't want to say the bar drops because it doesn't, but it's the, okay, let's say this, the bar of effort required to get a job is massively high at the beginning. And then do you think it goes down the more experience you have because you're so valuable at that point where it's like, if you wanted a different job, you could just be like, you kind of just have to prove that you know what you're doing is really, I mean, I think there's two facets here. Number one, the amount of entry level jobs is not big. Mm -hmm. And especially in Australia, trying to find an entry level programming job is you are competing against every other Australian. um, Because essentially like, here's like a beginner position. Me as someone that just came out of university versus someone who has been programming for three years longer than me. We could potentially be applying for the same job there. Yeah. Um, I think artists have it a lot harder in the game development industry, especially in Australia. Um, I've talked to so many artists where they're just like, I've worked on so many personal projects for free and I still cannot get a job in the industry. Maybe they might get a little bit of contracting here or there, but um, they get burnt out probably way more, way quicker. It's difficult. as a programmer, it's definitely, I got to prove to you that I know what I'm talking about for you even to consider um, hiring me. But I mean, the, the way I generally view it is the first step is always the portfolio. So you got to make sure that what you hand into them with your resume and your personal work, that you show them something that this is something that obviously I've done outside of the university degree or the advanced diploma or whatever, like I have done personal work that is applicable to game development. And that's the, that's enough to just for them to give you a call to say, Hey, someone's got, this person has something interesting in their portfolio. Um, that'll get you the call. And when you get the call, now you're going to do the interview and that interview sucks because it's their first interview that you've ever done for this thing. So they're going to ask you questions and you're not going to know the answers to them. And it might just be because it's nerves and you forgot or something like that. So it's, it's shitty that to get a job in the industry, you kind of have to do like 10 interviews before you're even ready to do the interview. So the only way to get around that is to do practice interviews in your own time. So you have to invest so much time just to get ready, just to get that first foot in the door. It's it's a lot, a lot of effort. I don't think you need to be like this crazy skilled programmer to get a job in the industry. Like, I don't think you need to be like the top, top percent of your class. Obviously, it helps if you are, but you just got to do a lot of prep work. And that prep work is very time consuming. But it pays off because then they ask you this question and you're like, oh, yeah, I've either had that in another interview or um, that was like some of the prep work that I did. And that just happened to be one of the topics that I covered, you know, and then at least you can respond really, really well to that one question. So you can actually show that you have the insight that they're looking for. And then the worst part on top of that is now you also have to show to them that you're a good match for the company. So you've proved yourself on your resume 
you've proved yourself in your interview. Now you have to prove yourself socially that you would fit there. Um, so it's, it's very, very hard. And once you get, I would say five years under your belt, that's when it becomes a lot easier and you can just say, just look at my portfolio. You've seen what I worked on, right? Like I can yeah. tell you exactly what I did in this game that I contributed to. These were some of the problems I faced and you can just talk from experience. And then the, they're just like, oh, okay, yeah, cool. We understand that, you know, how to work in this industry. So now the only question left is, um, do you get along with the company? And that's becomes a lot easier by that point. I think a million dollar idea would be, and it, maybe it's not a million dollar idea, but I'm sure this already exists. There needs to be a way for people to practice interviewing in a professional sense without having to actually go through all of the effort to get a real interview. Like if there was like a low cost company that you could hire that would sit down with you and interview for a myriad of jobs and then give you actual usable feedback based on that interview, I think that'd be great. And the problem is there, I can already see two issues with it. One, you're catering to a market that maybe doesn't have a lot of money to spend, <laughs> uh, at least yet. But there's a solution for that. Maybe you set up like some sort of payment structure where if you get a job, you come back and you pay a bit of money. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I think a big problem and the reason that all this stems stems from it is that there are so many people that want to make video games. Yeah. That you kind of the studios get to pick and choose who they yeah. pick. Um, because they pay less than say a normal CS degree CS degree job would. Um, but that's the thing. It's it's a thing of passion that a lot of people are striving. Well, it's not, not specifically just passion, but more creative freedom yeah. than you would probably get in another place. Um, because you get to see people enjoying what you make and that can be very, very rewarding. It's, it's a lot easier to take pride in your work. If it's something that you personally spend a lot of time doing on your own, mm -hmm. if you outside of your work can sit down and play a game, um, why wouldn't you want to do that for a living? And this is something that I hear echoed from a lot of my friends who have left game development where it's, it's, um, it's way more profitable to work outside of game dev in, in certain in instances, if you can get a equivalent job in the private sector. Um, but then you, you lose a little bit of that magic. I think you lose a little bit of that. What makes it special for you, but not everyone wants that. Not everyone needs that. So there's definitely no shame in leaving gaming for, for working and uh, making a lot more money doing something else somewhere else. But um, I mean, the big reason I stick with what I'm doing rather than doing teaching is because I get a lot of satisfaction from my job. Right. That's the thing. Like <clears throat> if I wasn't searching for that satisfaction from my job and I was search and I got satisfaction from another part in my life, I probably wouldn't care about doing something less dull in quotation marks, yeah. right? Because it's not that the other jobs are less dull because I think programming as itself is quite rewarding in general. Like for me, it's, it's, it's part of my passion is the programming itself. Like I enjoy solving those problems um, on a day-to-day -day basis. And it probably doesn't matter if I'm doing it in video games or if I'm doing it in um, some sort of program that I'm making for some private business. It's just, 
I myself play video games, so yeah. it's it's fun. It's definitely a big draw. It's one of the reasons, like you said, that game studios do get a lot more um, options when it comes to finding people, especially in the, at the entry level uh, versus the amount of jobs that are actually there. Um, so actually, let's get let's get a little more into finishing up these current talking points, and then we can keep talking about uh, some of the more off-topic stuff if we want to. Um, talked a little bit about your role at Larian uh, and how that's changed over the years. What is something that you, this is, this is my favorite question. We actually had this question uh, requested to come back because I had forgotten about it. What is something that you <laughs> personally wish more people knew about your job where like, Oh man, I wish people knew about this. So they didn't have to ask all the time or I didn't have to tell them. Um, I mean, we already talked about soft skills. That's uh-huh. the obvious one. Let's I'll try and think of it something that isn't that though. Um, we can come back to it if we want. Yeah, I'll, I'll sit on it for a bit. Okay. Um. So we talked a. We actually talked probably pretty extensively about this already. So I'm not sure if we have much more to cover for this. But um, being a gameplay programmer and and specifically, you said you focused a lot on pathfinding and uh, look emotion. Um. Mm-hmm. The other two people at your studio specifically, the other two gameplay programmers, uh, are they working on the same type of stuff or are they working on something else? And do you support them in that? Um, no, so I don't really support them at all as much as I would. I mean, I support them as a colleague, but I don't really, <laughs> I'm not like supporting them or anything like that. Um, it's not always a hard one. We don't really do any collaboration at all. In fact, I find. Since I've been at Larian, the amount of collaboration between other programmers I have is very minimal. Hmm. Like the amount of collaboration I have is usually because we've worked on similar features. And this is not specifically with my colleagues in Quebec. Um, but it's like, I'm working on something and maybe I just want to run an idea past you. And I know that you've got a bit of an idea of what I'm working on already. And just to see what you think about what I'm thinking. Um, but most of the time, the the interaction between programmers tends to just become from doing reviews of each other's work. Yeah. So we have a policy at, at Larian that any piece of code that gets checked in, um, it has to be approved by another programmer. And we're updating policies a bit more now, so it's even a bit more stricter that you have a very you have some guidelines that you need to make sure that you follow um, for the code. So for example does your code need to handle saving and loading? Because obviously we make video games and you can save and load in that. And you need to make sure that there are certain things that need to be saved um, and can be restored. Um, Whereas is this something that can just be kind of like using the available information that is saved and loaded? Can we work out what the state is based on that? Or does there need to be any state at all? So, I mean, to give you an example from before, the ReadyCheck system that I just recently refactored, um, previously that was not saved and loaded. So if you started a ReadyCheck and then you saved and loaded the game, the ReadyCheck would have been aborted and then you'd have to start it again, Um, which was okay for back then. It wasn't really a huge issue, but we're trying to make our code a lot more stable. So we did add the save and load into it this time around so that if a scripter started 
the ready check for you, the scripter can depend on the fact that they're going to get an answer from that ready check. So that yeah. way, save load, and it detects we were in the middle of a ready check that script is waiting for a response for. Okay, so we're going to resume it, and we're going to ask them again, and then they can give their responses. Or vice versa, what we could have done is when we detect the save, we immediately abort the script thing, and then we save that state. But it can get a little bit difficult to do it that way. So the easiest solution is to just save in its current state, restore it on the load, and then it's all solved for that for that situation. But so the work that I do, I need to have someone that's a little bit familiar with it, if I can. That's the best scenario. Yeah. If no one's familiar with it, then I just give it to someone who I think is most appropriate. And then they just read through my code and they go, what did you do here? Or why did you do this? Or did you think about using this instead? Or sometimes the other coder just completely trusts what you're doing. They give it a, just a very preliminary pass to see if anything jumps out. And otherwise they just give you an approve. But I mean, it really depends on who you're interacting with and what is the work you're doing. Like if I've changed two lines of code and someone just takes a look at it and they're like, cool, I don't really know why you changed those two lines of code, but it looks safe to me. They'll give me an approval without much questioning. Um, where someone else, maybe if I change two lines of code and they look at it and it's code they're familiar with, they go, whoa, that could have some unexpected results. Did you think about this? And you go, yes, I have looked at that situation and it, this is fine to do, or no, I didn't think about that. And now I need to readdress what I was actually working on to make sure I didn't cater for that. Yeah. Um, but sorry, I did tangent a bit, but collaboration wise, <laughs> not much. I don't do a lot of collaboration with my coworkers in Quebec, apart from just, we might review each other's code or if they just happen to be working on something that I'm familiar with, we might have a bit of a chat about it. Um, I do think that is stuff I miss because when I was at Halfbrick, um, we did have what we would call pair programming. And that's when someone it tends to be more of someone of lesser experience with someone with a bit more experience. Um, and you'd sit down together and be like, okay, what are we going to, what are we working on? How are we going to do it? Here are my suggestions for how I think we're going to do it. What are your suggestions for how we should do it? Maybe the senior programmer would, is able to guide you around some issues that would occur if you do it one specific way. Um, and I have done it before with an actual pair programming, which is we are both working on the same thing at the same time, but just from different ends. And so that we make sure that what I worked on and what you work on, we make sure that when they meet, that they meet and sync yeah. well. Um, that actually seems... I was going to say, that seems like a really good way to develop your more junior employees to be hopefully uh, very competent in what they're working on, like having a, a paired up system. It, it's, it's, it really depends on who you talk to. And it, it's kind of comes down to teaching style. I yeah. personally think like I did here. I remember watching, I think it was a VFX GDC talk. Um, Cause I just love watching any GDC talk I can get my hand on. <laughs> um, 
For those that don't know, GDC is the Game Developers Conference that's held in San Francisco. I think it's in San Francisco. Um, it was basically industry professionals that come and give talks about stuff that they worked on. Um, and there's this amazing woman talking, and I think it was actually a Riot VFX artist. And she was talking about how that they promote their um, their new VFX artists. And essentially what they really try and do is give them something to show what they can do when they first get on and just be like, okay, you're new to the company. That's okay. We'll like ease you into the company a little bit, but at some point we're going to give you a big task and we want you to just do what you can and be as best you can and do it in, in your way, essentially, right? Give you kind of free reign over it. And she was talking about by doing that, they allowed new style yeah. to come into League of Legends as a result. And I think Larian shares that a little bit in that one of the things that they do with a lot of their new programmers is they kind of just do this single swim. Like we just gave you this master task and we just want to see how well you do with it because it really shows where you have a lot of your faults. Like where are you struggling when we give you something like this? And then at least that way we can kind of help you out with it um, in that sort of fashion. I think when I started on the studio, one of the big tasks I had when I first started was I put in, and this was from my own recommendation, was I wanted to have it so that when you switched your skills in Divinity Original Sin 2, that your skills remained on the hotbar because that was not a thing at the time. So let's say I respect my entire character, all my skills on my hotbar that I perfectly placed would disappear. And I personally found that really frustrating and annoying as a Divinity Original Sin 2 player. So I was like, I want to work on this. And they're like, okay, cool. Yeah, you can do that. It's actually a big task and it's kind of a bit of a sink or swim situation for you. And so they kind of just threw it at me. Um, well, let me have it, I would say. <laughs> and there were plenty of issues that came out of that. Um, it was very stressful because I was working on a game that was live at the time. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't like if you get it wrong, only the QA testers are going to find out. No, no, no. Like I was getting bugs back from live development about how when they save and loaded, their icons were disappearing. And it's like, well, shit, I'm really fucking up someone's game here. Um, that is it's scary. An interesting way. It's, yeah, it's an interesting way of teaching people, I find. I'm not sure if I 100% agree with it. I do think it has its advantages. Um but I definitely think you've got to make sure you support your staff for what they do. Otherwise they'll never improve or at least they won't be the programmers that you want them to be. Yeah. You won't have that sort of cross track thing too, where people join and leave different teams. Um, if they're, cause I, I see that a lot, like you said at riot where they have a lot of freedom to, to work on different projects and that sometimes ends up, um, having major career shifts, just like people will be QA and then they go to a completely different aspect of the company, like uh, working in broadcast or working in the game design team or something like that. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, don't, I don't envy my managers for being the people that have to juggle that stuff. Like I am lucky enough that I'm so separated. I 
haven't done any um, uh, mentoring yet. Like that's something that I'm working towards um, as being a senior programmer because currently I'm like an intermediate game programmer. So if I want to be a senior programmer, I need to show that I can mentor someone and that I can um, guide people through from an internship level or from a beginner programmer level or even just another intermediate programmer. Um, yeah. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit on last week's episode. Um, our guest was uh, somebody who actually did mentorships at their at their company as, as part of other additional job duties. And she was saying um, a lot of that comes up with the idea that you learn a lot of a lot more about what you're doing when you have to teach it to somebody else, and, and it can help grow both their knowledge, obviously, and then your knowledge as well, uh, specifically because you have to know something inside and out so you can actually teach it to somebody who may not be able to pick up on it as fast as you would um, in that situation. So, yeah, that's interesting. I was thinking about your um, question from before about something that oh, I wish ahead. people would understand more. Um, I think a big one is really understanding that you got to admit when you're wrong on a topic. Um, and kind of, which kind of goes hand in hand in that, which is when someone does admit they're wrong to you, take it graciously. Because <laughs> my God, you want someone to do that to you when you admit you're wrong. Yeah, or else you're just never going to admit. Yeah, yeah. I think it's something I struggled with quite a bit as a programmer is someone calling out your code for being wrong, it's just not quite right is really what it is at the end of the day. But you gotta be ready to to let that go. And don't just argue like, no, 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 my way is the right way because you're trying to cover up your own mistake. I think, yeah, like I find so many people are under this pretense of they don't feel like they belong in the industry. So someone calling out their work is the worst possible thing that can happen because it's like them saying, you don't belong here. You don't know yeah. what you're doing here. And you can get so defensive behind that. But if you're open to it, people will be happy to guide you to being a better programmer or being a being better at your job, right? And then once you kind of like get to that point, then you start working towards the better product and not this personal, my code is the only way. I think that, I mean, that's that's just fantastic advice for almost everything you can do. Just be able to take criticism and and obviously not all criticism is going to be constructive um no but just be able to admit that you made a mistake and, and move on and try to be better in the future i think that is just knowing, knowing when to admit that and knowing when to fight back on a point that's it's hard uh, that's gonna be yeah, that's difficult <laughs> if, if you can learn it it's good that's like, two two when, yeah that's, it's it's a double up right <laughs> um yeah yeah, that that is definitely that's some great advice. Um and I think that's something that probably everyone struggles with no matter where they are just trying to know when they're wrong or when to admit that they're wrong and and how to move on from that and and then the uh, like you said the other the flip side of the coin is knowing how to be a good person to talk to when somebody is admitting that they're wrong and not being yeah. like well obviously or like I told you this was wrong 10 years ago you should have listened to me. Um, I think I think programmers suffer from it very much because not because they're people that are very arrogant or anything like that, but I think there's this mentality that comes with programming of I've finished my feature and now you've told me that something is wrong with it. 
<laughs> and I have to go back and fix and change things. It, it can be very anti to this mindset that you're in. It's just like the work, it works. Like I can show you that it works and someone comes along and says, no, but if this sequence of events happens or it doesn't support um, this future thing that's coming, or you could do this better. It, it's, it can be very aggravating to hear that. And you've got to be very gracious when someone says that to you and you have to be like, okay, are they saying it from a good place and would it actually make my code better? Or am I doing it in a way that I think it actually needs to be done and I need to educate them about that? And then maybe they might be responsive to it. They may be like, oh, okay, you did choose to do it this way for these specific reasons and they will 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 retract what they said because of your response. It's like, I think it's like if if you were writing a book or something and you publish the book and somebody comes to you and they're like, hey, actually in chapter four, Harry Potter says this, but in reality, that didn't happen. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I, I'm done with Harry Potter. I'm working on something else now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you don't need to tell me about that anymore. Yeah. Like, um, I can't imagine being a writer and you're essentially rewriting your book like 50 to 100 times, right? <laughs> it sounds aggravating. Yeah, it sounds like a, a huge pain in the butt. That's a that's an interesting analogy. I love that. Um, okay, let's let's wrap things up because we haven't been actually going for a decent amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the cha- uh, chapter four of the, the talking points. And these are basically the main takeaways and wrapping up. So basically a, a good summary of what we've been talking about. Uh, at least part of the time. So at a very basic level, we, we've, we've been exhaustive about this, but at a very basic level, like what are some skills and habits that you would recommend to people wanting to get into your role? Skills and habits. I mean, yeah, apart from what we were literally just talking about, uh-huh. soft skills, which we also mentioned as well. Yeah. Um, I think the big one is really, especially with gameplay programming, is realizing that you are building an experience for someone else. You're not building it for yourself. And there are kind of the skill that comes from realizing that, that you're just trying to make something that someone else will enjoy, which means you need to let go of some of your own preconceptions on how something should be. Um... I find that with some of my coworkers, we have a healthy argument system in place where we will yell the shit out of each other about how something should be, but we do it from a place of love. It just happens to be the way that we're comfortable communicating with each other. And so we will be very aggressive about it should be this way, it should be that way. And sometimes the solution is to just do it one of the ways and see how it goes and then get another person in to give it a go and give it a try. Um, so yeah, it can, it can be frustrating <laughs> where you want to do it a specific way, but you got to learn that you have to let go of some stuff. You, you don't have full concretive control over these things. Um, and the quicker you learn that, the better things will become for you, yeah. I think. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Um, if you had to tell yourself one thing when you were back in college, if you could go back in time and say, like, hey, previous Nicholas, this is going to help you a lot, what would you say? Um, don't get hung up on making the perfect game. 
or anything like that, like make, trying to make this perfect project that you want or things have to be really good. Um, the things I wish I kind of spent more time on as an early programmer were really just the fundamentals, making sure I got that stuff down. Like me having a project on GitHub, which we we're talking about before, if I had a project on there, which was literally just a circular buffer, which is for people that don't do programming, essentially imagine you had like a basket that could only fit 10 items in it. Actually, a better way to think about this would be, you know, in fridges, how you can have like a little insert and in the top you put in a Coke can and yeah. down the bottom you can pull out the Coke can. <laughs> imagine like if every time it got to the 10th Coke can, as soon as you put a new Coke can in, the bottom one always came out. So essentially what I'm programming is that, right? It's not overly complicated, but it's actually a really, really good way of showing your skills. And just try trying to do something so simple, you will run into your own problems. Like for example, oh, wow, how do these other people store this information? How do they ensure that it doesn't break? How do they get the information out? And all these sorts of things. And doing some of these very small exercises can be so beneficial to you as a programmer later on of just being like, let's take this idea, let's apply it in a way, and I'm just gonna write it from scratch that way. And the insight you get into doing stuff like that is is incredible. Some great advice. Okay. Um, in a hypothetical world where Larian Studios doesn't exist or you never really wanted to work there, um, what would be your dream job? It doesn't even have to be in gaming. Where would you be? I think dream job would be still in gaming. Like, I love it that much. I think for a lot of people who work in video games, the dream job is always to have my own studio. Because having full creative control over what you work on, there's nothing quite like it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun making stuff towards someone else's creative vision. <clears throat> like, I love working on Baldur's Gate, and the game it has turned out to be is something I think a lot of the people in our company are very, very happy with. I mean, we are still hoping to make vast, vast improvements on it, of course, but where it already is at right now, we're very happy with it um, right now. But yeah, personally, I would love to have my own game company and to have something to be literally for me to say, I made that. Like that is mine and I brought that into the world rather than I helped bring it into the world, if that makes sense. No, that, yeah, I think that's probably a pretty, a pretty uh, common theme among game we're, programmers. We're, we're talking about pre-stream about Hollow Knight. Uh -huh. um, another amazing Australian developers down in Adelaide. Um, I have so much respect for those guys because if I could say I made Hollow Knight, my <laughs> goodness, would I be a happy person. Oh, man. Talk about a, a, a trump card. Just imagine like walking into a room at a, at a game developer place and you're like, oh, I worked on this. I worked on that. And like, hey, I, uh, I co-made Hollow Knight. <laughs> yeah. That'd be pretty awesome. Something, something I think a lot of people don't actually talk about is the cred that comes from the games industry. Like now that I've worked on Divinity and I've worked on um, Baldur's Gate, I do get this kind of level of street cred mm -hmm. among my peers which is an interesting thing because when you're starting out as a student, 
all you want to do is meet people who've made video games. Like meeting the creator of Hollow Knight would have been so freaking cool um, if I was a student today. Um, but you got to learn that you can't really get hung up on that. And that <laughs> your cred is going to come. Um, and it just takes time. And you just got to be patient about it. Yeah. And not everything is created equal. Just because you didn't make Hollow Knight doesn't mean that your contribution to games is exactly some some people like to use their cred as a a bragging right right uh-huh. uh, don't let it get to your head like oh yes i worked on this game but other people have worked on just equally awesome games as well i want to go off on a tiny little tangent before we wrap up but when All i right. made the the thread on reddit uh talking about this show and 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 people were talking about coming on i think one of my favorite comments was at the very bottom of the thread. It was massively downvoted because I thought it was hilarious. Um, this guy said, I, the, the title of the thread was like, I talked to so many different game developers about how to get into the industry. And the guy literally said something like, I don't know why anyone would ever want to spend the majority of their life and effort working on somebody else's project. And <laughs> the top <laughs> response to that was, I like to eat and afford things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I thought was just hilarious. But uh, there was actually some really good responses to that comment. It, w- it was a lot of stuff like not everyone wants to be mm. the creative controller on something. Like not everyone has the vision of, of somebody at Team Cherry where they want to make I, a whole entire I game. so stressful. Yeah. You're, you are the life. sole, you are one of the sole people responsible for this game. Um, can can yeah. you imagine being like, what we're making right now, if it doesn't do well, we don't get paid. Like, out. And Three years that's of my it. life. Like, there's no other game that comes after this one because we probably won't have the, the money to finance another one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's crazy. Um, okay, last question, and then we're going to wrap things up. Uh, who are sure. some people that personally inspire and motivate you to be a better person and a better uh, professional guy? Wow. That's like right out left field. Um, <laughs> it can be anyone. Just the first person that comes into your head. That's the thing. Like I, I've never really been someone to idolize, I guess. I've never, all through growing up, I've never had an idol that I can ever think of. The closest person I could think of that I might do something like that with would be Matt Mercer from Critical Role. Um, just simply because... He knows his craft well, and he took something he loved and he turned it into something great. Um, just purely for the like, I love watching um, Critical Role episodes. Just like when I got some downtime, or maybe I'm doing something that's not like mentally taxing, so I can just have some audio playing on the side. Yeah. Um, but the way he just, you can see he loves what he does, is pretty inspiring for me. That's a, I think that's a great answer. And I, I wouldn't be uh I wouldn't say that's a bad answer. So that I yeah. I, I've actually heard that one before. A lot of people um not specifically think, Matt Mercer, but the critical role people. Uh I think have... the critical role guys are very easy to look up to because they seem so incredibly genuine yeah. about their love what they do. Um and it's also kind of like this stepping stone of like, we are massive geeks and <laughs> please come join us in being massive geeks. And this is showing you that it's, it's a lot more popular culture these days than it used to be. Yeah. 
Okay. Thank you, Nicholas, for coming on the show. We talked for almost two, or pretty much two and a half hours about a lot of different things. Really appreciate you taking the time. It was, it was awesome. I think, I think this was a great show. Um, do you want, okay. So normally I just plug people's like Twitter and stuff, but I don't really think you spend a lot of time and effort on Twitter. Do you have anything you want to plug? I literally only spend my time on Twitter. If someone messages me, that's about <laughs> it. Like I'll check it maybe once a month and that's about it. I'm not a huge social media fan. Yeah. Um, things to plug. Um, actually, I'm gonna have to Google the name of it. Give me two seconds. <laughs> no problem. Obviously, check out uh, Baldur's Gate if you're into that, because that's something that he's pouring a lot of his time and effort into. I will always try and give a shout out or a plug to any Australian developers I possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is a friend of mine. He's a programmer on their team right now. The Artful Escape of Francis Vendetti. It's this Ooh. pretty psychedelic platforming music game um i check, suggest you check out a youtube video of it or something um it's pretty cool but i got a friend working on that one so always happy to give him a shout out definitely check it out then I'll, i'm gonna look at it after the show you have to send me a link to that um oh, okay and if you like dev dive you can always check out the stream at twitch.tv slash nighthawk 20,000. we stream uh hopefully every week although i think i might be taking next week off we'll see um, if you can't catch us live, you can always watch our, uh, the videos on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Nighthawk 20,000. And if you don't want to watch the show, you can always listen on any audio platform, Spotify, iTunes, Google podcasts, Apple music, Apple podcasts, whatever it's called. We're probably on there. Just search up dev dive. Uh, give us a follow and a rating on those platforms. If you want, it helps us with SEO and discoverability and all that good stuff. And it makes me feel good inside when I see uh, people reviewing the show. So that's awesome. Uh, and then if you want to talk to me personally, you can always uh, follow me on Twitter, twitter.com slash Ben DePiro, uh, or just join the Discord, discord.gg slash Nighthawk. Um, and I really enjoy talking to people who like the show because, um, let's be honest, there's not a lot of them out there. So whenever I get to talk to people, it, uh, it makes my day. So you guys have an excellent evening, and I really appreciate everyone who stuck through and listened to this show and uh, listens to me every week. Uh, appreciate you guys a lot, and have an excellent day.